This is the show with Cannon Brown. And then mm-hmm. what he told me in the next 30 seconds was probably one of the most profound lessons I'd ever got. He said, start at the brim of their nose, put a big wide brim on their nose. And he said, nostrils inside there, you can load a 12 gauge in. And then he said, get back between their eyes and open up their eyes, width between their eyes, width between their ears. And he said, then he said, put a big flat immature shoulder blade and pull it to the top of their body cap. Go back to their hip and open it up the same. Then he said, take and put a flexible spine loose structures and he said align the legs true to the ground with angle and comfort and he said you can put muscle in a pig like that he said you'll create and when you pull that blade and hip apart you'll create that spring of center rib and he said you'll create a shelf where that muscle can lay on there and it can have muscle and handle it that last few minutes might have been a little confusing you'd like to know who i was talking to wouldn't you what's going on guys my name is cannon brown and this is the show I've got a great guest today. You saw the name, Mr. Kirk Swanson. And I have idolized this guy ever since I was in junior college. And I went to one of his workouts before Barrow Show, like many other uh, judging trips and judging uh, teams have done in the past. It's a great workout. And he changed my life in that workout. And we talk about that in that episode. I mean, he, he... in one single like sentence, he changed the whole way I thought about livestock, which was incredible. We'll get to that. This episode is very long, obviously, guys. I mean, I, I know you guys saw, saw the timestamp. It's a two, like two hour, 40 minute episode. It's very, very long, but I didn't want to break it up. And here's why. I, I want everybody to hear all these stories consecutively. And if I don't if I split it up, I, I'm afraid that not everyone is going to hear these stories consecutively. And there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of lessons. And he and Kirk puts a lot of emphasis on his mentors and sharing their stories as well. And I couldn't split that up. I, I'm not going to do it. So I know it's long. Pause it. Put it down when you're driving to work. What I don't need to explain to you how to do your podcast, but listen to it all and i put a little gym at the end we talk about hillbilly bone at the end probably shouldn't have told you that you'll just skip to it now no you're 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 not gonna skip i know you're not gonna skip this is this is a very very good interview and it's not like i have a lot of these two-hour interviews but kirk wanted to share his story and i felt the need to just let him go i mean i barely talk in this deal and you guys are gonna hear it I also didn't want to edit it at all. There are going to be some times where we have a little uh, time where we're both thinking about what we want to say next. We're going off the cuff here. And I wanted to, I didn't want to edit that stuff out. I feel like that's, I want to be as transparent as possible with you guys. And I want you guys to see like how our minds are working. And we even call back to Jesse's episode where we're like, Jesse had it right on the spot. He, he can give an answer very eloquently. And uh, we both have some tough times in this, in this episode collecting our thoughts and trying to figure out what we want to say next. So I left that in there. I don't want it edited. I love it. I think it's genuine. Check out all the other podcasts in the Barra Media Network. Legendary Mindset with Jake P. Richardson. That's about goats, sheep, 
all the legendary minds in that industry. Check out the Keeper pin with Jenna Wheeler and Maddie Caldwell. They are a firestorm. They're incredible. They're so funny, guys. If you have not listened to the Keeper pin, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm, I'm talking to the guys here. It's more of a girl show. I edit it every week, okay? I, I, I listen to the episodes, obviously, because I have to edit them. And sometimes they say some cuss words, and I have to put that little bleep in there. Just because we're, we're a family company here at Bear Media, okay? We're a family company. Guys, it's more of a girl thing, but it's hilarious. Girls, you'll love it. I promise. Check it out, The Keeper Pen. These are all on podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, all that jazz. Check out Cattle Pros. Check out Cattle Pros with Jake Scott. Jake Scott's from Krebs Ranch. He's the marketing director there. If you've listened to the show with Cannon Brown before, you've heard Jake Scott because he's been uh, he's been an interview. He's been a guest. And now he's got a podcast called Cattle Pros. He just had one with Brandon Callis that'll knock your socks off. I promise. It's so current. Uh, it's, it tells, it, I'm not, I, I'm not, I, I don't know what to say about it. It's very, very good. Go listen to it. I know I talked a lot in this intro. It's a long episode, okay? I just wanted you guys to be prepared for that. That's enough of me talking at the show pod. I love you guys. Hang on for a long one. Let's do it. Mr. Kirk Swanson. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. All right, Kirk. Um, dude, I'm happy to have you on the podcast uh, for this week, for this interview. Uh, you're somebody that I've looked up to for a long time. Uh, before I came to a judging workout at your uh, operation in junior college, um, I, I mean, if you don't know Hillbilly Bone, who are you in the hog industry? So everybody knows what you're doing. Everybody knows what you've done. Kirk, I'm happy to have you on. Well, I'm tickled, tickled here to tell a few stories and talk about it, Cannon. That sounds great. Now, I wanted to start out. We got a lot to talk about, and um, I know we talked on the phone a couple of days ago and tried to figure out an outline, and that didn't really go anywhere because we just kept getting on topic. So, we'll try to <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to stay on uh, some topics. Uh, but if we get on tangents, I'm cool with that too. That's that's just how it goes sometimes. So, I'd like to talk well, about. I was going to get. I was Go gonna ahead. get on the internet. See if, I was gonna get it on the internet and see if I could get a couple pictures of Elmer Fudd and put one on the right and one on the left to keep me from going down rabbit trails very far. <laughs> I'm sure that wouldn't even have helped you. <laughs> You're gonna do it anyway. I'm, I've tried, but I've thought about it and prayed about it today to try not to. So I'll do my best. No, and I like the tangents. So if you, I mean, I don't want to. We we got stories to tell today, like you said. So we've got stories to tell. I'm yep. not gonna. I'm not going to shy you away from it, but I'd like to start out about your history. Um, and I want to know, were, were you raised to be a part of this industry? Do you come from a generational farming background? Farming, yes. Hogs, no. That's one thing that's kind of interesting. My father didn't have any hogs. My grandfather fed cattle. And what happened in 1974 was probably somewhat of a uh, maybe a tragedy from a financial standpoint but it also probably redirected me into the swine industry because grandpa had cattle and I enjoyed working like I was really blessed to have two really good grandfathers to work with and so 
I did learn a lot from the livestock industry from them and my uncles and, and other people, of course. But uh, the swine thing was just kind of one thing. My younger brother really liked pigs, and at the age of six, he wanted to start raising pigs. And so I was eight, and we kind of dove into it. And by the time I was a senior in high school, we had 80 sows. So, oh, yeah, wow. Carried... But uh, Yeah, that, you dove into it for some... sure. 80 sows by the time you're a senior. Gosh dang, you're into it then. Well, my brother was really ambitious. We were both, I mean, we both enjoyed working together. And Dad was supportive, you know. I guess that's probably one thing I learned. You know, he he gave us an opportunity, and my grandfathers were a lot the same way. They gave you, we gave, they gave us an opportunity, and but they didn't try to be overbearing. They didn't try to, they let us make our mistakes. We've made plenty of those. So, anyway, but we learned from it, too. But, uh, well, what were the when you and your brother were kind of just getting into it, what are, do you uh, recall some of the challenges or some of the hurdles that you had to kind of get by some of the bigger ones that you might remember? Well, part of it was just getting the facilities built. Farrowing was always, you know, we, we ended up, we farrowed a lot in just six pins and eight pins and clean pins and turned sows in and out. And then we got it. We invested in an Emmert, farrowing house which was kind of a oh somewhat portable but uh, we put it up but it was so drafty it just didn't I mean it was miserable in the winter time we just couldn't keep the pigs warm and it wasn't so we sold it and then we remodeled some older buildings and made some farrowing house raised decks and that really helped a bunch and in 1983 I can remember I told my dad, I said, we got to get out of these eight pins. And Kent had gone off to college by then at Iowa State. And I had a, a cousin that was a really good carpenter, Mark Allen. And then I had a real good friend that I kind of knew through coon hunting that was an excellent concrete man, Mike Eckernall. And we ended up, I, we kind of just, we had a 40, it's kind of an eight deal. We had a 20, let's see, a 28 by 40, I think, maybe. It was my grandpa's old cattle shed. I wrote a Facebook, a little poem one morning on Facebook that was kind of neat. That um, We just looked at this old shed and decided that it had been our grower building. We poured concrete in it. And I told Dad, I said, I think we could make a farrowing house out of this thing. And Dad's really good mechanically minded. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, where are you going to put your grower pigs? And I said, well, we could build lean-to to the south. And I've talked to Mark about it. He said we could put a lean-to and probably put an eight-foot pit at the end of it. And I said, we just moved the pigs of the grower to the south end. And I said, then we could raise up the crates and make 14 farrowing crates. And Dad said, well, if you're going to do that, you just will put an office on the west end. I said, well, if we put an office on the west end, we just will extend it and put eight nursery decks. And so it didn't <laughs> take any more than about that much of a conversation. And we devised this many people have been here and seen it's not but you know really in a way that grower building ended up being maybe one of the first chip barns really is i we'd bring these drop these pigs down off the nursery decks and i i put shavings at the north end and uh we boy we sold a lot of pigs out of there in the 90s you know and you we kind of got them on concrete got their feet underneath them had them a little bit we had four infrareds in there in the winter time that was the only heat that heated that that grower building, the building was really efficient. But I can remember when we put a pencil to it, it was 63000 is what it was going to cost to do that grower, nurture deck, 
put crates in the front house and everything. I came in, I showed that to Dad, and he said, you better make it work. And I guess that was kind of interesting. When you look at, you know, there's people that invest that much in a show trailer today, and that that's my whole career was hinging on making that one building work. So that well, was that's kind of interesting. That's what I was about to say. I'm like, I wonder what that equates out to now. And that's interesting that you said that. Yeah, people are spending that on a really nice show cattle trailer. They're spending that 60 grand just on that deal. And you started your whole operation with it. Yeah, and I've never even had a show trailer. Maybe that's one of the reasons why. But, you know, one of the things I think was important, Cannon, was that there were some really good hog farmers in our area. There was Paul Carlson was a really, really good, he had hampshires and crossbreds, and he gave us a really good opportunity on getting some good females from him, and that made a big difference. I mean, he, he told me we went up there for a judging workout, and as we got over the fence, I asked him, I said, Paul, you're probably going to want to mark some of these. And he said, no, he said, it seems like you and Kent like pigs. If you're going to weather the storm, you'll need good sows, and boy, that was really true. And then there was a friend of my dad's, uh, his name was Kenny Gorenson. He had really good spots, and when he retired, we got a couple of his better spot sows. And then Marvin Requist was a pretty good purebred breeder. And then Tom Axtell had a really, he was a Duroc breeder, but his dad raised Polans. And we bought, his, we bought Gordon Axtell's, like, I don't know, 20 or 26 keeper gills he'd had a heart attack and he was going to retire from raising pigs and we bought his last set of gills but his boy tom had a really he was a fascinating hog man he was he he moved to tyler texas there and actually sold some feed products and stuff but i can remember going with tom to a type conference in 19 late 70s at christensen field in fremont nebraska and that was one of the neater type conferences they had they had type discussions. I can still remember some of those boars. They ran a big chest of boar in there. I think it was an Ordell Jekyll hog. And Gary Tice from Balco, Oklahoma, grabbed the mic. And he said, guys, there is one Superman in the crowd. And he talked about that pig having a big chest. He didn't have his rear legs were all messed up there and underneath him and stuff. But it was fun. I, I remember that day. And riding home to that show and riding home from that show with Tom. And he knew that we needed to get pigs expanded and more flexible and looser structured. In fact, he, bre he bred a Duroc boar that Byron Simpson bought called Designer Jeans. And that boar had a big soggy middle on him back when most of them were dry. So, you know, there's, there's stuff like that that you look back and you realize how much, you know, the, that one or two day experience impacted your life. Yeah. So that was kind of, that was kind of neat. This is a question that I've always had, and maybe you can um, put some light to it. But in the '90s and early 2000s, when they had those boars and those pigs all gaunted up and skinny bellied, and 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 they were straight off both ends, like what what made everybody just think that that was okay, and, and not realize that pigs needed to flex, they needed to be able to move. What I mean, what pushed people to even get away from just the heavy muscled stuff and then start being like, okay, we need to put some flex into their legs and their blade and all that stuff. It were, it was individuals that were innovators with great minds and passion. I mean, I, and I was blessed to be around some of those people. And, you know, I, I, 
I know we, we need to talk about some mentors later, and I won't try to get into that very much. But, you know, guys like Al Christian, it was fascinating to me. I, I got involved with our pork producers organization and stuff at a very young age. I was president of the pork, county pork producers when I was 23. And I got, it was my responsibility to hire the person that was going to judge our open show at our county fair. So I invited Al Christian. I knew about him. I'd seen his hogs on the Duroc News. He was selling pigs to Japan. They were exporting some boars for five, ten, fifteen thousand. And the, he was doing a lot of line breeding and inbreeding. And uh, I called him down and I asked him if he'd come down and do our county open show. Our open show, it was a live show where the, we would just paint number the pigs paint number a number on the pigs and turn them loose by weight into the ring and there'd usually maybe be five there'd usually be anywhere from 50 to 75 pigs we'd usually have somewhere about five to seven classes okay okay but at the end of the show we would scan all the pigs and there would be four trophies and the same prize money for each category but one was a live show and there'd be a grand and reserve and then there was also a carcass show and there would be grand reserve in there. And the prize money was the same. I don't know, it was 50 and 25 or something like that. But it was so neat. I remember it pretty vividly. Al Christian goes to the mic and he said, he goes, I'm really pleased to be down here in Montgomery County to judge your county uh, fair open show. But he said, you know, I, I understand that it's going to be a carcass contest also. And he said, I'm going to let that technician kind of take care of that end of it. And I'm going to try to explain some things that I believe will help you make your pigs more comfortable, more productive, and make it more pleasurable for you to raise them. So I'm standing over by these. One thing about anything in life, as you get older, you realize if you can shirt tail and hang out with people that have had life experiences that you can learn from, that's a really, really good way to learn. And so there were three really good hogmen in our county that, one of them was Paul Carlson. I probably looked up to him the most. I tell people there was Dean Scott and Wayne Dorley. They wanted to win the carcass show really, really bad. And they liked to do well in the live show. But then Paul Carlson, he'd like to win them both. And he knew how to do it. You know, well, anyway, what's interesting, I'm standing there by Wayne and Dean, and some of their heavy muscled pigs aren't faring real well because they aren't very good. They aren't as good structured. And he's, he's maybe making a, they're good hogs, but he's trying to, he's using phrases like later maturing. We've got to loose, get them looser structured. We got to expand the rib cage. He's using some terms they haven't, haven't heard. And he says, we've got to read these maturity patterns in these pigs. And as he says that, one of them looked at the other one and I was probably standing beside him or between them and said, when he talks about reading these animals, I don't know if he's even seeing them, you know, and they're thinking, just judge them by how they're going to cut out. But I had enough respect for Al. I said, uh, you know, you two guys have raised lots of great hogs. But I said, I really think we should listen to what this gentleman has to say, because I've followed what he's done with his Durox, and it's impressive. And I said, if I was to say what my capabilities as far as reading an animal might be, I'd probably be in the comic book, but I comic books. But I believe this man taking the mic, I think he's gonna write the novels. And so anyway, it was it was so so neat. 
when I was judging the York show at the Fall Classic a couple of years ago. I'm headed down through Kansas, through, I love that Chase County, I think it is. You're going up by those cattle pens, big Flint Hill country, you know, and I love that. And I'm going along down through there, and uh, I get a phone call, and I look down, and it's Al Christian. So we talked, and he does this sometimes when I'm going to judge something. He'll call and kind of tune me up a little bit. But it was so neat. We were about ready to hang up, and all of a sudden he goes, Hey, don't be afraid to talk about lateness and maturity. And I'll tell you what, we hung up the phone, and I started crying. Because I thought, that is so neat in life when you've learned from a great mentor. And I defended him when he was a little bit deeper than what some people could understand. And there he is inspiring me later as I'm going to try to pass on some of his lessons. And I, I just felt that was divine. I thought there's no way that that could have just happened. But, but Al and Lauren, Christian, I think they really understood what it was going to take. Lauren, you know, he was the guy that... He was a guy that understood probably as much about stress in the, the stress gene and stuff. In fact, he identified the stress gene by building a halothane chamber and putting pigs in it and filling it with halothane gas. And the way he determined how he was going to do that as his challenge for these pigs was he was reading through medical journals, human medicine, looking for different heavy muscled things that animals or humans that had reacted to something he found where there had been some heavy muscle men that had reacted to halothane gas when they'd been sedated and so that he went down that path and that's why if you check the halothane stress sheet that's why it says h-a-l and then that's how that gene got named is that was lauren's work but um so there it you know there's i don't know if you want to get into a little bit where one of my better lessons from lauren um was at uh, 19, no, 2000, no, 1991 Story County Fair. Are you still there and everything? Oh, I'm here. I, I'm, let, I'm letting you go. You, you, you just keep on talking. I'm gonna tell, this, this, this one, I think, is one of the better lessons I've ever heard, and I think it defines a little bit of the mindset of how we need to be innovative and thinkers. As we can, this path never ends in genetics. I mean, you just continue down it. But yeah. anyway, I finished judging the, the county fair at Story County, and Lauren Christian was the swine superintendent, and he'd asked me to come up, and it was a total derby show. In other words, they weighed them all on test. They weighed them all off test. They paint number the average daylight gain above their tail head with little numbers, and then they'd scan them. And everything was everything was shown live to be as a derby pig. That's the way Lauren wanted it. And so anyway, I judged the county fair and there was a whole gamut of pigs there. There was there were some company hogs that, you know, had grown well but weren't very well structured. But Gene Roush, boy, I remember one of them his name was Adam. I don't remember what the other boy's name was. But anyway, they had a pair of barrels. They were out of the Celtic board SGI, I believe it was Celtic Celtic maybe sixteen three or sixteen six. But anyway, they were out of that boar, and then Harold Hodson and Gene raised Duroc's together. They'd taken one of their better Duroc sows the year before and bred at Hamp and made a good F1 Hamp Duroc sow, and that's what that's what the boys had for this 4-H project. So anyway, they bred this F1 Hamp Duroc to a York, and I end up using 
one of the boys for champion and the other one for reserve. And when I came off out of the ring there towards the announcer's booth at the end of the show, Lauren's carrying a sheet with the carcass results on the average lean game per day results. And he hands me the sheet and I glanced down at it and the dog, the two pigs who were first and second on the sheet were for, were the grand reserve in the live show. And, uh, he looked at me and said, you did a pretty good job there, kid. I think I'd have been 32 years old. He said that to me a lot, but I liked it. Anyway, he said, you did a pretty good job there, kid. And I remember my response was, Lord, Ray Charles could have found those. I mean, they were, they were so <laughs> That's all there was to it. But anyway, he asked me. They had just finished. They commissioned Lauren to be the head of the task, MPP's task force to remodel the ideal market hall. And the ideal market hog had been a, a true pig that rode a Bosset race and shown at the had shown at the International in Chicago, I think, in about like 1969, late 60s somewhere, I believe. But that's the that's the pig they called Jasper. He's a blue butt barrel. He was kind of higher topped, real conventional look, clean jowl, had a lot of muscle and shape and expression. He was probably somewhat shallow rib, finer bone, and straighter structure, kind of like you described. But they wanted to read, this was 1990, so it was going into 91 when they finally compiled the results. And they, I think they published an article, I believe I'd seen it in National Hog Farmer like the month before. So anyway, Lauren asked me, so what do you think of our new model symbol? That's what they'd called him. And they had angles and he was a lot leveler spine and had a deeper flank and a fuller body cavity. And anyway, he said, what do you think of our new model? And I said, I can see, you know, from a standpoint of being more comfortable and sounder and the females made like that will be a lot better type sows. You know, I can see he'd be very adaptable to different types of finishing facilities, you know, whether if, especially if you raise them on concrete or on slats and, you know, he had big, uniform, more uniform type feet. But I said, there was one thing I liked about Jasper better. And he looked at me and cocked his head. And I'll be honest with you, Cannon, if I was older now i wouldn't have said anything but i was young enough and naive enough you know i i didn't think about the fact he had probably selected seven or eight people that he had the most respect for and this has been a tedious task that they'd worked on for probably 10 months and he so when i i said there was one thing i liked better in jasper and he said what's that and i said he had more muscle and boy, he took his finger and he pointed right. He was he went from being like a grandpa to a stern grandpa. He's like, he goes, no, he had more muscle expression. And then mm -hmm. what he told me in the next 30 seconds was probably one of the most profound lessons I'd ever got. He said, start at the brim of their nose. Put a big wide brim on their nose. And he said, nostrils inside there, you can load a 12-gauge in. And then he said, get back between their eyes and open up their eyes with between their eyes, with between their ears. And he said, then he said, put a big flat immature shoulder blade and pull it to the top of their body cap. Go back to their hip and open it up the same. Then he said, take and put a flexible spine, loose structures. And he said, align the legs true to the ground with angle and comfort. And he said, you can put muscle in a pig like that. He said, you'll create, and when you pull that blade and hip apart, you'll create that spring of center rib. And he said, you'll create a shelf where that muscle can lay on there and it can have muscle and handle it. And what's crazy, Cannon, I think it got impregnated into my mind 
but it was that was 1991 and it had to be close to oh god 19 20 years later i'm out there raising looking at pigs it probably was like black powder hillbilly red bone it was stuff that all had do little raids influence in it do little raid desire hillbilly was 348 pounds when ben bobble showed him at indiana he was six months old and he had 11 feet length 11.2 loin eye oh my and that was the sire hill but anyway i believe that was uniqueness but lauren had pictured that in his mind and i'm out there i mean i'd raise pigs every day i'd looked at a bunch of them and all of a sudden i had this epiphany type moment i'm like oh my gosh this is what lauren was talking about and it and it was just and once i ended up i'll be honest with you today i've got a tribute to him that Dale Miller wrote and that was probably in the National Hog Farm when he passed away there November 23rd in 1998 it's just an awesome tribute to Lauren and uh, I took a few minutes today while I was in the lab processing some semen to go over and read it again and what's fascinating is I've got it stuck up there on a cork board it looks like where that pinhole's been through that sheet of paper I'll go back there and I'll read it some days some days I read it just to think about Lauren. Some days I read it to think about his lessons. Sometimes I read it because of just how profound some of our experiences together was, and we can get into more of that later. But, but where that pinhole goes through that one page out of that magazine looks like it's been shot by a shotgun. I pulled it off and stuck it back <laughs> up there that many. I bet. So... That's but that's that's the thing that's so neat is it's it's those provocative minds that you know envision those things and and don't you know you gotta you gotta stick to the fundamentals but you gotta keep pushing you know and so it's it's kind of interesting but there and Bob Hines was great that way too and I used to just love listening to Howard Parrish Howard Judge the Burks there at that show in the summer conference in Des Moines. And I got to do the Walton webcast. <laughs> I gravitated back to why I enjoyed listening to him so much on the mic. He can just, he's seen so many pigs and he understands it. And he's got such a good way of, of relaying those messages, you know. So, but that's, that's what it's about is those people that have, have been innovators. It's, it's all about the innovators in our industry. And it's, I have a lot to say about that whole segment that you just said, I've been writing this whole time. So we're going to break it down bit by bit. Um, uh, but the, the, the first topic I wanted to bring up is just the idea that people, people like to get set in their ways, uh, and the practices that they, uh, are doing every day, whether it's, uh, raising livestock, their, their job habits, their daily habits, it's hard to change for most people. And, to see an entire industry change, to see the National Pork Board create a task force to change the mar the market pig of the United States or the world, that I just I can't wrap my brain around it. And and I know there's been change in the industry since I've been in, um, but not that extreme, not to the extremes that you're seeing. And, and it's that's a crazy story about Lauren. I mean, I. To think that he could just picture that in his head, and I'm sure he worked with many, many people to get that envision. But I mean, just like you said, it make them square, 
make them comfortable, make them loose spined and, and flexible hipped. And then you can put anything on them. And then the one thing that I wanted to say, and then I'm going to let you talk for 30 minutes longer. I'm not going to say another thing after this. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> no, I, I'm being serious. I, 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 uh, I wanted to say that we talked last time about you holding judging workouts, and we're going to get at that into into that pretty soon. But well, I wanted to. I want to mention one more thing before we move on. Just, yeah, yeah, just yeah. In the, just in the mindset of this thing about change. You know, Al Christian, he got an award one time. The National Hog Farmer, I believe it was, sponsored a thing they called the Masters. And I believe it was for industry, academia, you know, production, packing, the whole pork segment. And it was international. And I I can't remember how many awards they gave a year, but it was a neat deal because they would select these individuals. And it was probably one of the more prestigious awards you could really probably get when you look at the platform of who all was there to select from and what you had to do to even be considered. But anyway, it was neat. They, they selected Al one year and they asked him about trends. And he said, contrary to most people's belief, he said, trends do happen for an economic reason. But it was interesting. With that being said, I was on the phone there with him a week ago and he brought out a I thought was just a fascinating comment. He said, Oh, Kirk, he said, you should have, you should have seen how many people I had mad at me when I started talking about making them leaner and heavier muscle back in the sixties. And I, and it was just, you know, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> I had some people that were really upset, you know, and it's interesting. You go back hogs back in world war two, they raised them for the lard. Yeah. And so, it's just interesting when you make that change. But he did one of the things he he's been such a great mentor because he can always seem to gravitate to the positive, and that's one of the things I've tried to work on. I I don't know. I I sometimes get challenged by that. But he did in that article. He brought out I think something that we all need to focus and think a little bit about. And I've called him when I've been concerned and not like the way a trend's going or something. He said, No, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on, Kirk, you know, and he'll go, you got to realize, you know, I think I know where they're going on this. And he'll say it just that way. I've called him probably half a dozen times over the last 20 years, and it's about the same tone. But, you know, now I think I know where they're going on this. And he said, I I think this is what is going to happen. You know, what's fascinating is Al could sense a trend before the trend ever started. But the thing that he he would also be able, even if he didn't completely agree with it, He'd be able to see where the good was, you know, and I, there's some things in the trend we're in today that I don't actually agree with, but I do as far as the soundness, the phenotype, the overall profile, the skeleton, the comfort, the fun of it, you know, how much fun it is for those kids to show these kind of pigs. We've never made animals that are any more fun to show than what these pigs are they're showing right now. That's true. So, and Anyway, I, you know, so I think, but Al said one of the things from a breeding standpoint, he said some of the greatest breeding animals have been what he called transitional animals. It's when you've made that little bit of improvement in those areas you're reaching out, but then you realize, look, we've left a little bit behind. We got to bring that back in. He said some of those animals out of that transitional type, he said, will be the ones that will really, really move you. And I've seen that in bird dog deals. I, I, I've seen that where guys that 
bred traditional type shooting dogs that weren't big, big range and wild running dogs. And when they reached out and bred a dog that had a little bit more tenacity, they've made something that's that's gone on to, to change to change history and sense. But, so that's kind of neat. But I did want to just throw that out because a lot of times change isn't accepted easy. And sometimes as you start to go down the path, if we're open minded, we can kind of see the good that can come out of it. So that's I true. And it's such an interesting time too, and and economics might be changing our industry, but it's almost like our industry have has a mind of itself. Like you said, in the 1940s, they were butchering hogs for their lard, um, just because that's what they needed. It's interesting now. We've got a lot of pigs that are being raised in the show confi- confinement world that are looking a lot different from the production side. And you're a guy that deals with kind of both. Um, well, and I, I think one thing, I think one thing, Cannon there, and I, I'm sorry I interrupt, but, but uh, one thing that I've tried to gravitate to, and that, and I don't, I don't get them made. You know, sometimes as pretty and as neat and maybe as extreme as as I need to, but I one phrase that absolutely drives me batty is that the show pig and the commercial sector have to be separate entities. And Howard Parrish kind of touched on it a little bit there in Des Moines. And I I think if we're really, really going to have, I mean, we've got so much enthusiasm. I saw where the Iowa State Fair replacement show this past weekend had 1,312 entries. That's the largest entry they've ever had for a forage show at the Iowa State Fair. Wow. So, I mean, we've got a lot of momentum. We've got a lot of enthusiasm. But I really, when I look at the commercial sector, I don't think they're breeding enough for structure. They aren't breeding enough for balance. You know, let me interject a little story here. This might glue it together as well as anything. I I look, I've got a book I've read that is fascinating. If you have readers that people that listen that, want a really really informational book if they love genetics there's a book called the gene it's by an oncologist an author by the name of Siddharth McCurgy and he's also written a bestseller called emperor of all maladies kind of on on cancer but his writing style is awesome but anyway I'm reading through this book and I'm at the point where they've identified that there's this strange syndrome that's hit out in California in the early 80s and it's actually, it's AIDS, okay? Well, they see that it, it's got kind of, well, it's autoimmune deficiency syndrome is what it is. So they, they realize that there has probably never been a greater need to finish the human genome project than right now. To be able to maybe break this down genetically and figure out what's there and everything else. Well, I'm reading the book and they realize it, but there's stepping stones that have got to be accomplished to get that. Well, I got, I was on the Iowa Pork Producers Board. I think I went on them. It was mid '80s. I'm at a meeting, and there's going to be the some USDA representatives are going to come and make a proposal to see if the National Pork Producers and Iowa Pork Producers Association would be interesting and help fund the completion of the swine genome project. Man, when I'm reading in that book and I come across that, I'm like, wow, I was actually, a, I was in that meeting, you know? And so here's what's crazy. I call it a divine thread. 
I get, I go to this meeting and the other person that's going to go is born Christian. Of course, for, to represent the poor producers. Of course, I'm just kind of going to be there. And Lauren's, I mean, he knows the whole, he knows a lot of what's going on. But I had never been, they talked about, they talked about being able to use heart valves. They talked about, about identifying a specific gene. I mean, this is in the mid eighties. We didn't have hardly any DNA markers. You know, I mean, it, it was just at, the, at that threshold. So they're talking about we could make DNA markers so you would know these specific traits are in these pigs, whether they're positive or negative, you know, traits. You could select for it or select away from it, you know. And then they said, and then then we could actually even maybe at some point in time take some of these strongest traits out of some individuals and put them in others and make what they actually were talking about, transgenic animals, and then cloning them. And so the meeting finishes up. It's at the... University holiday in there in Clive, and it finishes up late afternoon. We walk out in the hallway, and I'm I'd sat next to Lauren through the whole thing. And as we walk out in the hallway, he pinched me, which he did sometimes frequently, like when he wanted me to pay attention. And he said, "What'd you think, kid?" And I said, "Lauren, I've never been in a meeting in my life where my emotional swings had been so wide." I said, you know, there early on, I was thinking, this is some awesome stuff. These are some real tools that we can use as breeders to make all better. But I said, and what was so fascinating about that is I really believe Lauren had sensed my emotion and he was going to direct me to kind of fix the wound, so to speak. Because I'll be honest with you, I stepped out in that hallway. I felt like I... I was a mechanic that was used to tuning a motor by ear and setting the, the lifters, you know, by feel and sound and, you know, and, and now... You were the natural. You were the natural farmer. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so when he asked me this question, he's, I really believe that he was... He said, what do you think? And I said, I don't know, Lauren. I said, you know, I I, I just... I, I just don't know if... Uh, I'm trying to think of the words I used... I said, I don't think I've ever been in a meeting where I've been so inspired, but yet been then been, you know, felt like, like he just, you maybe weren't going to, it just wasn't going to work out to where you you were going to be needed. Yeah. You you felt, you kind of felt replaceable. Exactly. You didn't I feel like, like there was any was finesse in obsolete. it or any skill. And so it was so neat. He he didn't go into deep detail. He said, Kirk, I've been very passionate about one project in my life. And he said, I felt like at one time that I had the last piece to put in the puzzle. And he said, you know what happened when I put that in? And I said, no. He said, I realized the good Lord showed me that that puzzle was far greater than I'd ever known. And he said, in our lifetime, he said, the human interpretation of livestock evaluation and husbandry will always be the most important component. And he said, never forget that. And it was just crazy. I went from feeling, well, I, words couldn't hardly describe it. You know, I just, I felt like I was worthless. Yeah. All of a sudden, walking out of there, like, 
And I, you know, I think that's one of the things to remember as you get old. I'm 61 now. I don't feel old. I, st I can still water ski if I can find somebody to go. I'm kind of given an invitation there. But uh, <laughs> I'm uh, down. I'll come up you know, there. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. But here, I wait. You know, I don't. I can't what, ski, but I can wakeboard. Well, we'll do that. I got Deal. Daniel's got an awesome. Well, you won't even have to bring one. He's well. Depending on, might bring your boots, but Daniel's got a. Daniel, he's got nice, my boy, he's got nice stuff. He's got a nice wakeboard over there, and he's not using it very much. You just get here, we'll go. But anyway, what's what's so neat as you get older in life is you look back, you know, when I was young, I, things were a lot more materialistic. I wanted to be make this much or whatever. Maybe it's you get older and you realize that those dreams probably aren't going to happen. But you look at the, what's the chance of something like that happening? You know, and then... So you see a lot of your inspiration didn't come from monetary game. It's just like showing pigs. I never showed a purple ribbon pig. My 4-H career, I think I won a 4-H judging contest. I don't think I ever won showmanship. I know I didn't. I didn't. I don't think I ever won showmanship at the county fair. My brother Kent won showmanship. He got a buckle and a belt at the Iowa State Fair. I tried to win one the next year with a guilt that had a pin nipple and Bill Hem was spot breeder from Sheffield, Iowa was judging and I made one fat, they didn't even pin pigs they just shot us straight through the ring I went in one gate and out the other that was it, I'd, I'd put 10 miles on that guilt I, <laughs> I walked 100 feet that was it, I can't remember the hot day or what the deal was, but they just decided you were going to go across the ring and either get pinned or not, and I walked across the ring it was just like waving in a parade see ya gosh dang <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was something, but but that's that's one of the fun things, you know, as you look back those. But I do think that's something to think about, you know, where we're at in this industry is it's the talented people that can make the difference, and I I really believe that this the comment that there's the show pig industry and the commercial industry are completely different. I just think that's because we've accepted it can be that way. And I really think if we, I really think the neat thing on the show pig thing would be is if we'd adopt somewhat of Lauren's model because the as we've gotten further into it, and I sent you some pictures of some of those chops, I think the hidden component that both sides of the industry are missing is the meat quality. And I think if if we would adapt just the skeleton, the comfort, and everything we're doing with the show pig today fits that model pretty well. All we got to do is expand that rib and start calling muscle that's laid in there right instead of work you know this phrase a fresh top sorry 10 month old pigs can't have fresh tops that's <laughs> not that's an oxymoron yeah so you know we can have actually a, that you can get i mean it's it's rare but you can get a pig that's got a big expressive top that's laid on a hog with a big center rib you know but it, it's not easy and it's you know there'll be but Anyway, that's just that's my ideal on on the comparison between the show pig and the commercial side is I think I think the commercial side can get a whole lot better in the structural durability side. Now the number side, they are really, really, really good at that. You yeah. Know, I take one thing away from them. But those pigs structured in those buildings, yeah, they could be a lot they could be made a lot better. Well, and that's because somebody go ahead. Been, that's because somebody's not there, like the the individual, like Lawrence describing, 
it takes that individual with a passion and you know an ability to see those animals to be able to make that change and i don't think the integrator well, i can't speak for him because i haven't been involved with it enough but from the pictures i see in the magazines and other things i think there's a lot of room for improvement on that end of it so anyway so well i think you hit it right on the nail uh that we made it two industries it's not it's not two separate entities uh, on paper, I mean, in our heads, we basically made it two entities. Um, but I wanted to get your opinion. Do, do you think that the uh, production side, you were talking about structure and how they need to be better. Do you think that consumer wants have affected that? Just be, I mean, the belly and bacon have uh, risen above loins for being the most profitable part on a pig, on a market pig. Do you think that consumers have a... Um, I don't know how to phrase it. Uh, uh, do you think that consumers are responsible for uh, bad structured and in, in uh, the production no, side? No, I don't. I don't. I think more than that, Ken. And I'm I'm just speculating. I don't know for certain, but I, you know, one thing I do know in genetics is it's not hard to make progress with a limited number of selection pressures. When you, when you want to try to identify a certain thing you want to change, especially if it's fairly highly heritable, you know, uh, you can change that quite a bit. But mm. when you, you have a wide, and I think that's, that's one of the things I've tried to do in our sow operation is I probably feel like I have more selection pressures that I'm trying to cope with. Some you know, than just trying to get that outline model, you know, that look. And so because of that, I, it was interesting. The first, the first ad we ever wrote on Hillbilly, I was on the same kind of mindset that we're, we're attempting to talk about right now. And, and it dawned on me, you know, to make those genetic changes that can impact things take a long, long time. And I, and I thought about it. It's just, it's a lot like home cooking. And a lot of sometimes what people want to do today, especially in the show ring, is more like fast food. You just, you go buy a fancy, nice made gilt that's probably got a decent pedigree that's, you know, got a really good presence. You breed it to a popular boar that you think will complement it. And, you know, in a matter of five months, you see your results, you know, where I look back at building Hillbilly Bone. I mean, it, there's, well, to be honest with you, I don't know that I'd build him. I think it was more of a gift. We can talk about that if you want. But but uh, one thing I can say in Hillbilly's pedigree for about seven generations back there were some of the heavier bone, faster growing. There, They were a lot of the traits that he transmitted and did it more than one generation. He had, he seemed like, you know, he had, he had the ability to not only influence the first generation, but his daughters and granddaughters and some of that, you'd still see some of those strengths that he could transmit. And so I call it depth of pedigree. Um, but I think that's, but so when you look at like the consumer side of things, you know, that's where I really think with the meat quality thing is once you've eaten some of these chops that have really, really got intermuscular fat in them and are juicy and 
you know, the flavor, boy, it's hard. It's hard to think you'd want to eat something else. I mean, I think some of these are eating right now would challenge the very best of steaks. So, well, I, that's why I sent you my address. Finally, I was like, I, I, I want yeah. to. <laughs> We're gonna work on that. We'll send you. I, we'll send you a couple. You sent so, me those chops over a picture. I'm like, come on. And uh, I gotta be honest with you. I've been told that makes some pretty dang good pork chops. So I am desperate to get my hands on some of those. We'll we'll get some off to you soon. We'll get the first part of the week there, and we'll get some chipped off to you. But but I do, I I do think um, we've learned a, a lot in the last four or five months. I mean, one thing that's, that the consumer has shown us is that, you know, they'll buy a deep freeze. It's hard to find deep freezes were sold out in this area, Yeah, you know? And so I think we've been in the paradigm that the food industry is just fine. It's going to go integrated. It's going to be more efficient. They're going to sell it for less and all this. And I think as we've looked at what's happened, I believe there's an opportunity there for innovation. And I know some of the people that have been selling, you know, um, meat direct have had very good, very, very good months the last couple of months. So, yeah, if you owned a local butcher shop, your last five months and next six months to eight months are looking very good and very busy. And yes, no it, doubt. it's good to see that that's happening too. I mean, I know a lot of people when this pandemic uh, started, a lot of people were wanting to know where their local butcher was, if they could get things butchered. They were calling their friends that they knew that had livestock. I mean, everybody was trying to find meat that they could stock up, which like you said, was, it, it was nice to see. I mean, the, the agriculture and the big, bad meat industry is always um, getting demeaned on social media, but it's nice to see that um, when uh, when everything goes wrong, uh, people are dependent and, and they're still very en- enthused about buying meat. Yep. You know, I, I really believe that, you know, if you step back and you look at logically how corporations work and what drives them most of the time it's it's potential for profit and i i think this is just my opinion i think we've probably been a little bit misled at least i feel like uh, there's some things that make perfect sense if you think about it but it also, you can see where it, would, it potentially could have created a very, very difficult environment for those of us like myself that are left in the open market. Yeah. When you look, when you look at, I think it's Betsy Frazee's had the pork powerhouse. I think she started that back in the nineties. And I always get intrigued reading that, you know, you see who the major players are. And I always, you know, at one point in time, I thought I wanted to maybe market a hundred pigs a week, get to where we sold 5,000 and, after we farrowed about, oh, I don't know, there's a few years that we probably farrowed close to five, 600 liters. I thought, that's enough. I don't need to get to 5,000. I've got enough. But I, <laughs> I think when you, when you look at those numbers and the expansion, I remember in 2017, I mean, it's predicted right there that we're, we're in trouble. 
the article says it right at the very beginning. You know, we're, we've overexpanded. Well, I think it's logical to realize that they probably, there are people, I had friends that were over in, in Asia and over that way that they were aware of this African swan. When the first time I heard of ASF, I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. And then what's interesting, I didn't find anybody I talked to that knew what it was either. And some of them were people that ran semen supply companies, you know, just lots of places where you, you knew the implications of this was going to be huge and they did not know one thing about it. When I called Grassley's office, I guarantee you they did not know anything about it. I'll guarantee you that, you know, it was totally new. But there were probably people in the production sector that realized at some point in time it was going to get to China within the next couple of years. And they were gearing up for that. So I guess the thing that I struggle with is this whole tariff scenario. I just, I don't buy all of it. I just, I just don't buy all of it. And so... We've been under this premise that we had this floodgate get closed when the tariff got created. But yet, I think if you use some logic, you'd have to ask yourself, well, when COVID hit and we had to close a few plants and the chains got slowed up, we couldn't get all the pigs killed and then we had to euthanize some pigs, a lot of pigs maybe. But when you look back, that floodgate should have got closed that tight two, three years ago and we didn't euthanize pigs. So I think there's a good question there. What has that tariff really done and what has our export flow really been the last three or four years? And I I say that and I'm probably speaking and I probably shouldn't be saying it, but we're the ones that are getting the blunt of that expansion and we aren't the ones that expanded. And I really believe that there needs to, I mean, there's an inspector general's office of the USDA that is to oversight the fraud, waste, and abuse within agriculture. And I believe that at least two or three of those things may have may have been happening in the pork sector. And I don't think anybody's looked into it. So there's my soapbox. I won't, I should, I probably, you might want to clip that part out, Cannon. <laughs> no, I want you to keep talking about it because here's why I like it is you're doing it and from what we've talked we've talked we talked a little bit about this on our phone call earlier this week um and it seems like you've done your research so i feel like it's it, i feel like if you do your research and and you kind of know what you're talking about um you're allowed to make these statements i on the other hand tried to do some research got lost um and, and i don't know as much as you do so i'm just gonna be quiet about it but i want well, you to tell us more about what the situation is here's here's one page that i came across within the last 30 or 45 days that i think is absolutely paramount in this situation and I, i'll try to explain how to get to it i think if you go to the usda type in or if you just do a search usda beef pork poultry price spreads you should be able to get this page pulled up i'll post a, i'll post a link on uh, my facebook page so if anybody's trying if to find it get i'll post that a done, link that would be that would be awesome because i've spent many hours over the last here i mean here's the bottom crux of it and i want to explain this probably before i go any further i mean when i look back at my life canon it puts lumps in my throat it makes chills go down my back. 
I think of the awesome opportunities I was given by some, I mean, I didn't pay an intu- I didn't pay a tuition at Iowa State, and I got taught by Alan Lorne in a way that that's one of the reasons that I I love to have judging teams come through is I feel like I I'm still indebted to them for those lessons, but so because of that, and I see some of these kids on judging teams. I had Casper community or Casper College from Wyoming was here just a few days ago and I could look at those kids and there'd be some of those kids their eyes would just be glowing there's one girl I just knew I thought she is absolutely loving this she is on fire for these things that's where I you went know? Kirk yeah yeah I love so, those kids those are my those are my friends and family at Casper College yeah and there there was you can talk to Jeremy he'll tell you I mean it was just neat so I feel indebted to that. But one of the things that has driven me to probably look into things is I, my boy and my nephew were taking pigs last Wednesday. We loaded 90 head of pigs. We'd had to kick some off the slap barn and put them out on dirt. I'm not going to euthanize pigs. I'm sorry. But I, I'd been, we'd been blessed. We'd sold more pigs private in June and July than I had to the packer. But I'd gotten backed up. I couldn't find any more. And we had we had some pigs out on dirt and they had to go. And we sold ninety we sold ninety head of market hogs last week for sixty one hundred dollars. Wow. That hurts. But as I'm watching Daniel and Dylan push those pigs across that dirt lot, I had the hog cart and I was pulling around there and there. I could remember in nineteen seventy nine, I could remember putting the posts in the ground when we were building that pen. And it, there were some tough times coming. We'd been through some tough times, but I still had hope. I still dreamed that I could be a pig farmer. And I just, I, I, Al Christian asked me two weeks ago, he said, Kirk, is there any hope left out there? And Al's been one of the greatest at inspiring things. So I guess what, before I go any further, I think that's the thing that we need to realize. It's people that create the inspiration. And then we've got to, we've got to be, if you're out there and you're passionate, there's an interesting thing about passion. They've proven that adrenaline enhances memory. So if you've got a passion for something, you're going to remember more of it. And what builds your intuition? Those experiences that you remember. And so that all fits together. So as we go into this next little segment, I just want to define the reason. A lot of this stuff's crazy big over my head, but I can. The thing that I feel is important today is we're at another one of those transitional times. There's another wave. I mean, I called people. I spent three hours on the phone March 4th, talking to people in the Packers and Stockyards Administration. I talked to people in the Iowa Attorney General's office, and I told them my fear for what was coming, because I, my intuition, I was just feeling it. The Brazilian beef ban had been lifted March 3rd. I felt the feeling. I saw the pain in my grandpa's eyes in that beef ban in 1974. He lost a quarter of a million dollars. That's one of the reasons I didn't feed cattle. But anyway, so if we go to this page on the USDA pork, beef, pork, poultry price spreads, it's there's some interesting things on there. And you can look month-to-month accounts. And there's people a whole lot better. It's like an Excel spreadsheet. But the thing that I gravitate that's simple for me to, to look at is the share of the consumer's dollar that's getting back to the producer. 
I think when we look at that number and that number only is going to define some sustainability and fairness within the industry. And it's interesting if you go to December of 2019 and look at the cattlemen and the beef, they're getting 45 cents out of that consumer's dollar. When we passed the mandatory checkoff, I called Pat McGonigal, the head of the Iowa Pork Producers, a couple weeks ago because I was pretty certain my memory was that it was at 46 and 47 cents of that consumer's dollar. And I asked Pat, I said, you remember when you were a fieldman and we were working on that? Where were we at? And he said, I think mid-40s. And I said, that's what I think. But anyway, so what's, what's tragic is you look at all the advancements we've made in the quality of our product, the safety of our product, and the efficiency of how we produce it. And maybe with that efficiency, you can accept a little decline in, in that share of the consumer's dollar. But we are absolutely at record lows. We are less than 15 cents. And, I, and as I look at this expansion that's coming into our industry, if you look at those pork powerhouse deals, there's not much doubt in my mind. A lot of that expansion has came trying to figure out how you're going to access that Chinese market. And that's logical. But who ends up suffering the blunt of it when it doesn't work out or they overproduce? It's the guy that's left in the open market. And, and then it just becomes a, a financial burden that's too, too, almost too difficult to take. But it, when you look at that sheet, I think the cattlemen should probably pay attention to this very much so all very much also because when we look at the cattlemen's where you've been I, I applaud you for that so we look at the pork sector we see the decline but you look at the poultry that line item's not even on there they don't even acknowledge that there's a percentage that goes back to their producer because there's probably not one and i i can remember when I was on the Iowa Livestock Health Advisory, well, when I was on the Iowa Pork Producers Board, one of the neatest things that I've done on any type of committee or councils was I got appointed to be on the Iowa Livestock Health Advisory Council of Iowa State. And there was a $300,000 annual appropriation from the Iowa legislature for meat animal research at Iowa State. And each, so there was a representative from the cattlemen the poultry board and sheep and then the pork and so it was a small board and it was it was probably one of the most inf i loved it it was one of the, it was one of the most informative things we were on the ground level of when you pick up a bottle of respiture today dr richard ross that was his work we fund i think we gave him one of his first grants to start that project and it was recombination vaccines and in that in that book, The Gene, they'll talk about that. And that was another one of those things that was just awesome because I'm reading through there and i like, they put a moratorium on this when they figured it out at University of San Francisco in California, or University of California, San Francisco, in Paul Berg's lab, and they put a moratorium on I'm like, I can remember Richard Ross saying this is going to be one of the first projects to do this protocol he believed it'd work. And I'm like, wow. You know, That's crazy. It was crazy. It was just yeah. awesome. But here's what's interesting. The that was back when the popular pork bumper sticker was promote pork run over a chicken. You talk about politically correct today. <laughs> but the guy, that, the guy that I just loved to sit next to in those meetings was a Mennonite from Solon, Iowa, named Bob Redhair. And he was brilliant. 
And he, we, oh, I'd love just, he'd tell him, but he told me probably in 1986 or seven, he said, Don Tyson wrote on a napkin and gave it to Bill Clinton and showed how he could control the meat industry. And you know what I really think part of what was on that napkin? What was it? Was it was NAFTA. Because then all of a sudden you can take advantage of the strength of the U.S. dollar over the Canadian dollar and you could farm that exchange rate. And that's what created Smithfield's ability. See, it's an interesting thing. This, this is what I, a couple of things that I do know. I mean, look at that price spread thing. I think that's a really informative thing. But here's some things that I do know that happened in the 90s that nobody talked about. Nobody addressed it. It's just like if you listen to Smithfield's, the Senate Ag Committee hearing on Smithfield's sale to Shawway Foods, you can pull it up on C-SPAN. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. And some of the things that the questions are asked are very, very pertinent questions. And they, the answers they give them, and like, in fact, you know, what happens if we sell a meat company to China? Well, now, now here we do, and they can tariff us put a tariff on us you know what effect does that have on our industry i can tell you i sold those i sold those 90 head for 6100 dollars last week i can tell them what it did but sitting in that room the ceo for smithfield can say well it'll be it'll be business as usual nothing will change now if you do that in a court of law and you knew better that's perjury is it it what's what is it when you're in a senate hearing you just cash the stocks and and go on. See, here's what's interesting. Smithfield buys a food company in the mid-90s in Canada called Snyder Foods. They buy it for $190 million. At the same time, the United States, we're going along here. There's some agribusinesses that are having some, appear to have some difficulties. The one in particular I'm talking about is farmland industries, and it's more diverse. There's fertilizer issues. They're trying to sell get into some grain ports and I don't know probably enough to even talk about some of those things but here's what I do know as we get to 2001 and 9-11 happens that exchange rate the advantage goes out of it so Smithfield sells I don't know if it's because of that reason but they sell the very food company that they bought in the mid 90s now I don't know what the annual sales were when they bought it but when they sold it in like 2003 I 2002-2003, they sold it for twice what they had purchased it for. They sold it for $380 million to Maple Leaf. And it was a $770 million, $770 million annual sale company when they sold it. So anyway, what's interesting is when they sell that for $380 million, they turn around within a month or so of that, and they come down and buy farmland foods out of farmland industries, bankruptcy, just uh, divestiture, which is being handled by J.P. Morgan. They buy that for less money, and it's a $1.8 billion annual sale with labels such as raised in the heartland and farmer owned and so i have a hard time 
with that. Well, they're just. And it, then you the, is it is the problem that they're just picking them off at low prices, and then being able to kind of sell them off uh, to foreign countries? Is that what's kind of picking your brain about it? Well, here's here's what I believe happened. I believe that there was an environment that got created. How it got created, I've got a feeling about, but I probably would be best if I don't say a lot of it. But when we got that $8 hog market in November of 1998, I think as we look at some of these timelines, I talked to a person today for a company that's expanded greatly in Iowa. And I asked them about these 60,000 capacity that they bought in these 17 new farms that are supposed to. And the first thing, they kind of sounded like they didn't didn't have expansion. And then I said, well, I got an email that says you've got it, so I can send that email back to you. And then they said, well, we did that because of protesters when we were euthanizing pigs. We, we had to get more finishing capacity. I don't think you can get those 17 buildings built that fast. I'm sorry. And I went back and I looked, and some of the companies that they're doing business with had some contractual agreements with the WH Group to help get product into their retail in China. I'll bet that's when those 17 buildings got decided they were going to get built. That's speculation. But, but so here's, if you look back at what I believed happened in the 90s, I think when NAFTA got created, that it gave an opportunity to buy pork out, if you bought $6,650 worth of pork out of Canada, you sent a check back with that producer, They that value of that check when it's cashed in Canada would be $10,000 Canadian dollars. And if you look at how that game can get played, I think the scenario or analogy I used the other day, Canon, when we discussed it, was if you look at what happened to the Bank of England in 1992 when they were trying to do what they called the EMR, uh, exchange monetary rate which John Major was trying to promote Margaret Thatcher said it won't work it about broke the Bank of England George Soros made a billion dollars on it it cost every man, woman and child in Great Britain between 15 and 16 dollars that's 1992 yeah. now, I do know one of Luter's favorite phrases CEO for Smithfield I should get the quote exactly but for the most part it says money will flow to opportunity well, when NAFTA gets passed, that, that exchange rate, that duty to adjust the exchange rate probably, I think, created that opportunity. And the thing is, you look what caused the $8 hog market in November of 1998. It was those pigs coming out of Canada that did the same thing to the shackle space as what COVID did. You had more pigs than you could slaughter. And so all of a sudden, there's this perception that these market hogs have not a low value, they've got no value. And when that happens, you're in, if you're a producer, man, that is a miserable, miserable, miserable feeling. But here's what's interesting. That was November of 98. By January, the second largest sow herd in the country with procurement was Carroll Foods. By January, Smithfield's already put a bid in to buy Carroll Foods for $500 million and some stock trade. By the time in May, when the Security Exchange Commission approves that sale, they've got to make an adjustment in the cash sale part of it because of the reduction in assets in Carroll Foods. 
That's that's the eight dollar that's the low hallmark. But it's interesting in about March, February or March, Farmland Foods came out and though the market was probably down in the twelve, fifteen dollar range, Farmland Foods came out and said if uh, you've been a loyal if you've been a loyal producer and selling pigs through our system, we are going to put a floor of $24 on pigs. And I, I really believe for the intention of what Smithfield wanted to accomplish, they might not have wanted that to happen. Because if you look at the end result, when within 24, 36 months of this event, the next largest sour in the country is Carol, that's Carol Foods, then Murphy's. And I don't know a lot about what happened, but Murphy Browns gets created, and I've had people tell me different stories. But anyway, Smithfield has captive supply coming out of that. The fourth largest is Farmland Foods. And they end up with that sow herd, and I think sixth largest was, was Land O'Lakes, another cooperative. So the, the other thing that I think needs to be looked at is if this mines, there's two mindsets that I, I get bothered with. One is that it can happen to the pork industry because it happened in the poultry industry. I can tell you when I was a young boy, that would get me a butt whipping about as hard as anything when I did something offensive. And maybe people don't think chickens and pigs are that much different, but I think as we look at the economics of what it meant for our local communities, the livelihoods of people that went to college to make a career in agriculture, there probably were some that maybe wanted to get into poultry, but it was a lot different when you made that attack on the pork industry. I feel the number of people that got affected and the way it affected the communities. And the other, the other thing that, um, that I think We had Heimer on here a week or two ago, and he never did this. His mind works quick enough. He never gets in those lags. <laughs> you know what? That threw me off, dude, because I even said it in the interview. I was like, what are uh, – like I gave him an outline like I gave you an outline, but I didn't give him questions that I was going to tell him word for word, and it sounded like I got done with the question, and he was – right there he he took a one second pause and then it was into it and he wasn't gonna i, I mean he knew his answers real quick now, jesse's a well, very that, very intelligent guy well that's one of the reasons that i i guess i get i probably said things i shouldn't have said in this interview but i the reason i get outspoken about that is we have got some of the most talented people that you'd ever want to see or work with i mean any, I, I, let me just take a moment to break away from what we were talking about. If there's a parent out there and you want to uh, impress upon your child kind of an ideal or what they've got to shoot for, go to one of Jesse Heimer's South Sales and go through that preview. It is so, it's so impressive. I mean, it just, the way he can recall what those pigs what that sows produced where they've won who's had them it is one of the most impressive rotations that i've ever seen in my life and so that's the reason i guess i get kind of on my soapbox is that is 
man, if there's kids out there that have that kind of potential, we need to give them a place to develop it and enjoy it. And I mean, I, that's one of the things I told the person I was talking to today. I said, you know, it shouldn't, that was in the larger segment of production. I just said it, sh should we, I mean, it's just get so caught up in this paradigm that we don't feel like there's a place that an individual can go out and, and have his own sows and farrow his own pigs without, and, you know, people have done that successfully in the show pig industry, but boy, in the commercial side of things, the, the breeding stock side of things, it's, it's pretty difficult. So anyway, well, it's hard to do. And, and I know you're, you said you're going on your soapbox, but I, I don't really look at it that way. I think you're, you're bringing up things that no one really thinks about Like, I, I mean, for one, I never really thought about the exchange rate um, and, and the kind of trading between countries and watching the exchange rate go up and down. I think that's one thing that not a lot of people think about. And also, I mean, it's it's just, it, I don't know, the whole two industry thing is is just a hard topic. Um, just because we they just need fairness. Yeah. You know, we need we need fairness, and that I wrote, I wrote it. This was, I guess, this is probably something I've never talked about. But another, we look at life. You know, sacrifices you make in life, and sometimes those sacrifices are something you look back at and you're like, you know, that's the reason I, I am what I. That there's a word. You know, I guess it gets back to. I'll go into one little detail here on the story. Um, that Dr. Don Draper, my good friend at the vet school at Iowa State, I call him my intellectual godfather. And he, to this day, he he's the one that told me to get the book, The Gene. Read the book, Kirk, you'll love it. You'll love it. It gets better as it goes. You know, that's exactly what he told me. Well, back in the early 1990s, he used to love to come down there. We kind of adopted him. We adopted each other. He loved to bird hunt, and I loved to bird hunt. He had a daughter, and, you know, he did a lot of things. They showed pigs together, showed some horses and stuff. But he loved to bird hunt, and I had my father didn't bird hunt, and so we kind of just adopted each other and hung out. It was awesome. But in about 1991, he invited, there was a guy that was the head of the neurology, or became the head of the neurology department at Ohio State by the name of George Martin. And he invited George to come, and they did kind of a trade deal where they were going to have some leading experts on the human medicine side come and do a presentation at the vet school at Iowa State. Don was in, in the anatomy department, and he also taught some neurology classes. And so they thought that it would be neat to kind of swap. They'd, they'd go teach some on the veterinary side at Ohio State and Georgia come and give some seminars there in the fall of 91. Well, as they're making the arrangements, George says, when does this need to happen, Don? And he said, well, it's the last week in October. And George, I don't think he even had to look at his appointment book. He goes, uh, he goes, well, that Saturday I've got a conflict. And Don said, what's that? And he said, well, I've got an appointment with Windsor. And Windsor was his Britney Spaniel. He George loved a bird hunt. And he was planning on, he said, that's Ohio pheasant opener. He said, I got to take <laughs> Windsor hunt. 
And Don's no, he's nobody's fool. He said, he goes, George, I've thought about that. And he said, I've got a proposition for you. He said, why don't you bring Windsor with you? He said, I've got a friend down at Red Oak, Iowa that's got some bird dogs and got some pretty good places to hunt. And he said, why don't you come down and, and we'll go down. We'll finish up early on Friday. We'll go down and spend the evening with them and we'll go bird hunting on Saturday. And that definitely, that was, that's one of the, that one's not a divine thread. It is a full blown rope or yarn, whatever. I mean, that the relationship that I started with George was just, it was one of the most, I call him my spiritual God, him and Tommy Hilton were my spiritual godfathers. But here's what's interesting with some of these people that you have as friends and resources, whatever. I was reading in Exodus 4:24, probably six, eight months ago, and it's after Moses had had the experience of the burning bush, bush, and God was telling him he's going to have to go back and lead his people out. And of course, you know Moses was put in a reed basket, grew up in the, you know, grew up in the home of, of or, with with Pharaoh, you know, and the, and so anyway, he he knew how difficult it was going to be to convince Pharaoh to turn the 3 million people that he was going to have to take. But God convinces him, tells him, you know, shows him how he can turn his staff to a snake and turn water to blood. And, but as he gets ready to go, he asks, I think it's probably somewhere Exodus 420, something like that. He says, as he's getting ready to go on the way, Moses says, well, what if you won't let him go? And God says, if I have to, I'll kill their firstborn. Well, Exodus 4.24, it said, on the way, God attempted to kill him. And when I read that, I had read that 20 times, canon, and it had never, ever gone into my mind. I just couldn't comprehend it. I just, so I called George and I said, George, I said, he knows the scriptures really well. So I said, how in the world could I have read this that many times and it never soaked in? He said, Kirk, it's hermeneutics. He said, it's so far off of the realm of your comprehension that you just never even, it just, it never even gripped. And what's interesting is I read that before, the part about killing the firstborn. When I first read it that day, I thought that God was going to kill Moses. And then I asked George about it later. He said, no, he said he was going to kill his firstborn. But then what's interesting, the next short segment is that when Moses, basically there's a Hebrew and an Egyptian in a fight when Moses was young, he's probably late teens, early 20s, something like that. And he ends up slewing the Egyptian to save the Hebrew. Well, then two Hebrews are fighting and he breaks it up. And one of them says, what would you have done? Would you have killed one of us like he did the Egyptian? And then when he found out somebody knew, he fled to Midian. Well, he married the priest of Midian. Her name, he married the priest of Midian's daughter. Her name was Zephora. Well, she knew the scriptures and she knew the importance. They had not circumcised their sons. So that whole part was about she reaches and she circumcised the son, throws a foreskin and said, what do you want to be, a father of blood? blood to me and so you can see there's a that's an awesome lesson because when you go to represent somebody or something you've got to be a part of that you leave yourself what would happen if you went to lead the people out and they're not 
it's over. So, but anyway, the hermeneutics part of it, I think, is really, really a fascinating mindset when we begin to look at things, why we see things the way we do. And I think I may have, did I share that link with you, that little 10-part deal? I believe you did, yeah. I think you sent me that link. But it's just interesting because it shows in our life that our life experiences, you know, there's a thing called the hermeneutic circle, but the, the importance, there's things in your life that impact you that will, when that thing happens, it's, it's different, you know, there's things that good and bad that have happened. You know, I look back at when we won the Iowa State Fair for the first time. I mean, it was a feeling that it was incredible. I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, yeah. it just, it was awesome. But there, there are certain remember. times, there are certain times in life that is just life changing. There's those moments that are it's just life altering, whether they're good or bad. And that, the bad one was what, you know, I, I wanted to explain the hermeneutic side of it just a moment because the next one, something I probably I don't know that I've ever even told my wife is that back in that time frame of 2000, I was, I felt like I was in a battle. I was trying to do something to create an awareness of how much stress was going on out here in this pork industry. I mean, there were lots of people that were going out of business. And so I wrote an editorial that one Sunday morning called Fair Trade. It was March, I think 20th, 2000. And as I finished, I'm not very fast. Heimer would have had it done in 20 minutes. It took me three hours. <laughs> but when I walked out of, we've got an older schoolhouse that we have as our lab and stuff. And when I walked out, my younger brother Kyle was working on a PhD in botany and horticulture. He loved native grasses. He loved prairies. If you ever get to the Henry Wallace homestead at Orion, Iowa, as you come down the driveway on the south side, that native prairie there is named in his honor. It's Kyle's Prairie. And when he worked for the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation, they had an old just grubbed out cow pasture and they wanted to make it into a native native pasture with native grasses with prairie flowers and stuff. And so he reestablished a native prairie there. And then about a year later, that morning, March 20th, as I walk out of the schoolhouse, he's walking to his pickup to head back to Madison to get ready to prepare for a seminar that he's got to do on Wednesday on prairie, prairies and La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I was running behind on chores and everything else. And I said, hey, Kyle, you know, I'm glad you made it back for, you know, basically the spring break. And uh, we didn't hardly, we didn't talk, but for just a moment, you know. Well, he heads back across on Interstate 80 and south of, of Newton, Iowa, semi that's got a tanker with kind of a tongue affair on it. It's kind of a different, like a fifth wheel that the wheels ran underneath the front of the tank. The tongue broke off and came across from this pickup and killed him. Oh. And, and so, you know, I, I've often wondered in that haste that morning, you know, if I'd have given him an extra hug or just told, talked about something or whatever, you know, and the good Lord's got a plan and it's not something, you know, it was kind of interesting. We didn't find out about it until 10:30 that night. It happened early or mid morning, I think 9:30, 10 o'clock, and later we found out that he'd he donated his organs and stuff. And I've had a 
Oh, there's a historian. I've tried to get a hold of him a couple times, and I haven't reached him. It's Peter Kuznick. He's at a university out in, in New England somewhere, but he is a really, really interesting person to tell about the life of Henry Wallace. And I, I've kind of had a... And he did some stuff with Oliver Stone, the playwright, the one filmmaker. And I, I've had some thoughts about what Kyle would have been thinking about as he tilled that ground and planted those seeds and made that prairie like it used to look, you know. And, and I'd wanted to share some of those thoughts with him and got a couple ideas, but that may happen, it may not. But, but anyway, so some of that, I think, that scar of dedication or trying to make a difference or whatever, it runs pretty deep. And that's something I've never even told anybody else about, but I know it, you know, and that's part of that hermeneutics, you know, it, 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 it changed me. You can't go into it that far and lose that much without trying to, and the other side of it is there's just, there's been so many people that have helped me so much that it made it such a special journey that I hate to think that that journey, that those roads are closed. I just can't, I can't accept that. Well, now, now I think you're put in the position that you've put Al and Lauren in. Uh, you're in that position where, I mean, you've been hosting judging teams and working with judging teams closely for forever. Uh, and I, I was lucky enough to be at one of the judging workouts uh, on that Barrow Show uh, trip run. I mean, that, that run where we just go to like nine places one of the places that sticks out to me most is Kirk Swanson's place in Red Oak, Iowa. That that workout, it, it was just so informative. And I, it's it was very informative because of one of the things you said earlier. Um, and it was about talking about when Lauren told you how to make pigs right. You got to make them square so that they can lay muscle on top of their skeleton. And I think when I was at that judging workout, that's the first time that someone had ever said that in that way. And it was you, and you were talking about one of the boars that you pulled out. You gave us a little showcase of the boars that you were feeding out. And you were talking about, you gotta be, like you got to make them square, big skulls, make the muscle lay on their skeleton right, make them loose skeletons. And then you said something that I, will stick with me for the day I die and it's the coolest thing you said and it was in the fad where everyone was getting their head jacked up everyone wanted their blades to be as tall as possible get their head jacked up and you just looked at us you were like you guys can't do that it's like a scissor lift if you get it too high that pig is not going to be able to walk and the way that you said it about a scissor lift I was like oh my gosh that that makes so much sense no one had ever explained a straight blade to me no, like that until it, it ever until you said that that day and it it just changed the way I evaluated livestock till this day you know it, it's it's interesting one of the things I think that has been a real advantage for me is, is I've got passions for numbers of animals you know and and I I was at a guy's quarter horse guy's place in Oklahoma, they had a really, really, it's called play gun. He was a great stallion. But there, his mother was a, you can pull her up. You can pull her up on YouTube. She's, 
think she's called Miss Miss Silver Pistol, I think. But she was a gray mare out of Doc's Hickory. And she literally, Cannon, she could drop to the ground. And I asked wow. him, I said, how do, how do they do that? How do those horses have that kind of... He said, it's, it's, it's dropping the forearm. It's angle. The base of that shoulder that allows their knee to set back. He said, they can literally just about like she can do... Well, the guy that rode her was a fairly long-legged cowboy. She would drop so much and swing with that calf sometimes, his stirrup would literally hit the sand. I mean, just... <laughs> It's crazy that she wasn't a real big mare, probably 14-1 or so. But, you know, that's one of the fun things. But the thing that I love so much about that structural side of it, and I'll challenge all these kids, breeders, whoever, we all can see the outside. It's not hard to tell when you hydrate the muscles and get it blown up there and they got a big fanny and even, even the alignment. I mean, yeah, you can see that. But boy, when you can, I love Shane Brenning. We, we get talking about it. Shane's so gosh darn passionate, you know, and he'd love to see that skeleton. You got to look inside that skin. You got to dig in there and figure out what <laughs> it's doing. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge, you know, and that's what really makes, makes breeders and makes kids that have got that ability. But I just love it because there's so many times it's like water skiing, you know, you get all of a sudden one time you get that feeling you're like that's what it is that's what it is right there i just got to figure out how i can do it again you know and so anyway do you uh that's what do you know uh norman coles norman has been to my place it's been so long ago i know that he was really he was really it was important what he did with the goats and oh yeah know, he, how he got that whole thing started right he, he was guy. he's probably the most in, influential person in the market goat deal just bringing him over from right. africa and that stuff i mean he's he's a legend in the game but he uh so one of my buddies jake richardson he's got a podcast called legendary mindset and where he uh interviews sheep and goat uh industry leaders um, yep. And he interviewed Norman, and Norman went went on kind of a rant about uh, livestock structure and how go out to he he was saying go out to the wild and see how they're built. That's how they're supposed to be built. That's how God put them on this earth. And he was saying that the most structurally sound animal is a polar bear uh, because it can walk on ice, and if it slips, it, it's it's flexible and and ever moving. I think you and Norman. We should get you guys on a podcast together to just talk about structure and have you guys just go into it. Because I'd like to hear it. You guys seem like you're on the same wavelength. Well, you know, it is interesting. We use that phrase sound as a cat. Yeah. And I don't know how many sounds I don't know how many sows we've had in in our four K farms operation from the beginning, but it'd be numerable. But to be honest with you, there's really only a handful. There was one, it was interesting, the old sound system sow we bred to Hillbilly, 109-7. We bred her to Hillbilly, made 85-4, and Nathan Ray got that that female as a gilt and bred it to Swiger and made made Sugar Daddy. Mm. And that old sound system sow, I called her Cat because she literally, her blades moved up in her top, her spine was down, her length of femur, she just had that comfort. She went across a lot just walking like a cat would walk with that same kind of stride and flex and comfort. So 
you know, the, the one thing, though, about that I think is interesting with pigs when we talk about animals in the wild, when you look at an animal and, and expect, I think the pig is, is interesting. If you look at an animal and you think, what would this animal look like without any human selection pressure? What would it gravitate to? What, what's, its, what, what's its natural flow? And there's probably some animals that might be a little more difficult. Maybe you could go back in history and look at cattle or horses or whatever. I get amazed sometimes. I look at old pictures, you know, how good some of the older horses can look, you know. But oh, yeah. Anyway, it, it's interesting when we think about that, that challenge with a pig. We know exactly what a pig would look like without any selection pressure. It's a feral hog. Well, they can change within a, three weeks. <laughs> Well, what's interesting is I think that the thing that's helped me and Lauren, Lauren Christian had an article. It was in the July 1991 Yorkshire Journal, and it was on the pig color, inheritance of pig color. And the way he phrased that in there, it was, I think, paramount in how we prioritize our breeding schemes. And to complement that. Al Christian told me when I was probably maybe 25, he said, Kirk, one of the hardest things to attain and easiest things to lose in any species is heaviness of structure. And so when you combine that with this article that Al, or pardon me, that Lauren wrote, Lauren pointed out that when it comes to pig color, that there's like five or six loci that are going to have a very, very high degree of influence, like 90% or more influence on the cut pig, the color of the pig. I mean, he basically said these are the these are the ones that will control the majority of the color patterns on a pig. And he points out that the loci that has the big eye, which is the inhibitor gene, he called that the epistatic allele. And if you think of the Greek, epa means above, okay? So what this article was about was I'm sure that we were running into some of the pure animals that were getting thrown out on color. Lauren was explaining how this would happen. And he said that the epistatic allele should be, on a Yorkshire Chester Landrace, should be a homozygous big eye representation. Because the other like five or six, the other five uh, uh, loci pairings below that, he called the hypostatic alleles. They were, the epas above, it's like the master switch, and the hypoalleles are below. So he points that out, and then he shows that if it's a homozygous big eye, big eye, even though these other color patterns, those genes are there, they have no influence. They're hypostatic. They, it's like a switch that's shut off. But if you open up, the way you open up, if a, you get a dirty, pure, white-colored hog and it's throwing color, you've got a little eye in there that's allowing those other genes and the other leos, just loci, to influence and express those, those traits. So when we, the reason I point that out is I really believe when you look at 
how fine boned and the characteristics of a feral pig, when we try to get a mindset or challenge to build one, you know, I, I need to mention George Watson in this thing because George has done this so well, probably as well as any breeder in of any of the breeds. I mean, he took those German Yorkshires and I don't know how <laughs> how much we want to disclose on that, Ken, and that might be something for another webcast, but they the, the genetics that came out of Germany in the early 70s were so far superior to what most of York genetics were in this country. It's lights out difference. Really? And, oh, it's it's crazy. They smuggled the semen in. and it They smuggled it? The, yeah. Was it illegal? Yeah. Well, the FBI were all over it. That's probably about as much as I better say about oh, it. Oh, Kirk. <laughs> okay, we're, when you, we'll save that for another one. We'll, we'll save that for another time. But here's the thing that's interesting. That, that these The boars, the boar two that was over there that these people had seen, and it, it was people in high places. It wasn't, it wasn't just a farmer. But anyway... They were so superior to what we had in this country. It was a game changer, not just a little bit. I mean, it's like a Michael Jordan coming on the scene or greater. Wow. You know, and and they knew it was just a one-shot deal. And so there are individuals in this country, good breeders, they line-bred those animals to keep those traits. Because if you didn't, it'd be just like that, that representation of just those that's the thing you know lauren he gave me a really good inter interesting lesson on this very thing that same day at the story county fair i had had a x-lax sow she was belted x-lax was a purebred hampshire pharaoh in crate number seven this was nine like in july of 91 she'd pharaoh just a few days before that she'd had 13 pigs i'd bred her duroc but she had nine pigs that were red or red belted so homozygous for red. But she was seven generations away from a purebred Duroc sow. And wow. I just could, I could phantom in my mind. Here you've got this sow that's like 128 Duroc, but you've got three-fourths of pigs out of a red, red belted. So after the show, I asked Lauren, that's crazy, for the two lessons I got, the one on on symbol and jasper and then this color lesson all within 30 minutes and both of them are extremely profound so i asked lauren i said lauren i said how in the world did i take a sow that's seven generations away from a duroc and breed it to a duroc i said she's she's a belted out of x-lax the hemp boar of stanley martins i said how did i get nine out of 13 pigs homozygous for red and he looked at me. I just loved it. He get that glowing eye. He just, you knew that he was just, he was, he was going to nourish you. I mean, he was going to give you, he's going to feed you something that was <laughs> great. Importance. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, Kirk, you made the most common mistake people made in genetics. And I said, what's that? He said, you assume genes dilute out. He said, it's not a dilution. It's a probability. He said, uh. when did the, when he said, when did the, the Duroc, tell me how that got in there and it, from the beginning. And I said, well, it was a three-letter purebred Duroc from Philip and Tommy Johnson. 
He said, what did you breed her to the first time? I said, I bred her to a malt 32-4 boar from Craig and Willard Olson. He said, okay, out of that, you got either a belted or black or narrow belted F1, right? I said, yep. He said, okay, in that F1, her gene representation for color was she got one black gene from the hamp boar and her mother contributed one red gene. He said, now, so you've, now you've got a heterozygous gene makeup with the pure red duro. You had a homozygous recessive little r, little r. He said, now all you've got left is the little r and a black expressed big because the black's dominant over the red. But he said, that little r is still there. He said, now each generation, as you go down this chutes and ladder, each generation, you stand a 50-50 chance of keeping that red gene or losing it. He said, if you lose it, it's gone completely. But if you keep it, he said, after seven generations, the probability of that gene being there isn't very great. But if it is, Kirk, it's doing the exact same thing as that half-blood for that that particular gene. Yeah. So he said, that gene didn't dilute out. It's still the... So he said, you've got three-fourths representation. That's what you've got. He said, that's why you got nine out of 13. That's 75%. You've got... So it was crazy how picturing that in my mind that all of a sudden you've got this probability and not a dilution where that gene is coming through or getting totally lost. So when you realize that, you see the importance of when they got that German semen here one generation you can take a homozygous trait that can make a difference and all of a sudden you made it a heterozygous and if you don't have a like gene like that over here it's same as gone mm, it's yeah express itself so there was a there was a, a doctor in in texas by the name of cd smith and i think you know it's fascinating with george he it's interesting gordon jones told me he judged a Bradler Large Market Hog Show in Western Kentucky. Back, it was probably had to be in the 60s. Would have been. Because George is a couple of years older than I am. And he said a 10-year-old boy won that show with a purebred Yorkshire Barrow. And he said, that pig was... He said, there are 250 head of market hogs. He said, it was comparable to a state fair. And he said, I went to the kid's dad. I was so impressed with that pig. And I said... How's that pig bred? Is it a purebred? And he said, that's purebred Yorkshire. He said, how's it bred? You know, what have you been feeding it? Or, you know, he said, I don't know. He said, you need to talk to the boy. So he goes over there and he taught George. George is just 10 years old. And he goes over there. Gordon told me this story himself. And he said, uh, he said, I started talking to this young boy. And he said, he could tell me everything about the pedigree, how it had been fed, what his mom did. And so he was so impressed. I mean, this would have been in the 60s that he got the boy's phone number, address. It wasn't like you could text him or call him, you know, with a <laughs> cell phone. He kept in touch with him. And then as he got to be a, into his teens, this had to be about four or five years later, he'd been to, Jesse made a comment about rudders. I, I was, it, it tickled me and warmed my heart after his, after his sale, he wanted to have a farm sale and have people show up. And it, it was reminiscent to him of the times when he'd go to those production sales at the Rudders. Well, I can relate to that because we used to go 
it was fun. We'd go to Joe Dimmig's. We'd go to those production sales, and it it was awesome. It's kind of the experience some of the kids, probably young kids, have today, going to these NJSA shows and stuff. We'd meet other kids there and all that. But anyway, Gordon told George, he said, Jim Rudder's got a set of boards up there that are really, really good. He said, if you if you need a herd board, maybe you can talk your dad into driving up there Saturday. They're going to have a viewing in the afternoon, and the sale will be Saturday evening. So sure enough, George and his dad went up there, and they got there in the middle of the afternoon, or maybe a little earlier than that. And George, here he is, 14 or 15, he dives in and starts going through these through these pins of boards. Well, Glenn Canaster had just been hired as the new York executive director, and Gordon was there and introduced George to him and said, you know, well, Glenn, or, or maybe Glenn came over and whether Gordon was there to introduce him or not, I can't remember for sure. But anyway, Glenn met George before the sale and he said, I've heard from Dr. Jones that you're really an enthusiastic young breeder and excited and you're doing a great job. And he said, you're the kind of, you're the kind of breeder we need in this breed. We want to do all we can to help you be successful. And so George thanked him. Well, after the sale, George had bought a bull for $375. Well, Glenn had got with Jim Rudder, and I've heard this both from George and from Gordon, so I think it's pretty accurate. So anyway, he goes he goes to Jim Rudder, and he said, look, you know, this young boy here, he's bought a bull for $375, but I guess it was a set of bulls. They sold them up into the thousands, and this had to be, you know, maybe 1970-something. So anyway, it was awesome. Glenn asked Jim, he said, do you have any better boards that, you know, maybe we could get George or get, you know, if he wanted to buy one of those more expensive ones and couldn't, you know, come up with the money, whatever, is there something we can maybe, you know, have him look at that might be something he'd rather have? And Jim said, yeah, he said, I got a couple other boards I was going to keep and use, but if, you know, if this boy is that enthusiastic about it, let's go, we'll go talk to him. So Glenn goes up and tells George, he said, look, you know, I'm, I see you bought a boar for $375 and we realized some of these things sold really, really high. You know, he said, if, Jim said that if you wanted to look at some other boars, that he sure had some and he'd work with you on price the best he could. And George looked at him and thanked Mr. Canaster and he said, no, sir. He said, that won't be necessary. He said, I got down here early. He said, I looked them all over. He said, I bought, said, all due respect, sir, but he said, I bought the boar. I bought the boar I wanted. And I tell you what, that fits George Watson to a T. Because George is going to do what he believes in, and that is what's made him such a great breeder. I just love that story. That's a great story, honestly. How old do you think he was? 14 or 15. Wow, that's that's a good story, dude. That but is you incredible. know what's interesting is that you know, in that German blood, there would have been a lot of trends that come and go. And yeah, what's what's neat? I mean, this is a difficult time right now. It's I think it's been six years since George lost Eric this week. And uh, well, I, I need to give credit. You know, one of the things probably in the history of our herd, the one paramount thing that in terms of buying a herd boy, I had a well, Don, Don Draper, he. Uh, sent me a text not too long ago and he said, Kirk, what was the one boar that you got that might have created the uniqueness for the sow herd to give you the foundation to really, you know, start your herd? 
Well, we bought some gills from from Paul Carlson, and they definitely they they helped us. They made a big difference. But as far as a boar, George Watson had sold a boar called Profit to Swine Genetics, and he was up there. He was line bred, and he ended up he had got the point. He was real line bred, and his semen wouldn't live but for about twenty four hours. And Russ Snyder helped me a bunch. He taught me how to AI. He taught me what you know a lot about structure, immaturity, productivity, and sows. And Harold was good too. And that's swine genetics that my wife worked up there. That's where I met Jara. So that's kind of important. But anyway, what's interesting that this profit boar, he was a neat boar. He was so much different. He was level spine, a big footed, stout skull. And Russ called me one day and he said. I think if you'd want, we maybe can send the boar down there and you can collect him, maybe breed some sow sperm rich or extend it one-to-one. He said, if you can get some daughters out of this boar, Kirk, it'd, it'd be, it'd make a difference. So anyway, I got the boar down here and I got collecting him and I got daughters on the ground out of him. And he was, he was a lesson. It was much like what your vision and, you know, of that angle and stuff in the shoulder. I mean, this boar was just so much different, but he carried a ton of that German influence. And he, he's what made, he's what made the difference. I can remember Tim Fort was here and, oh, I think it was probably 88, something like that. And I, I'm trying to remember if that was 60-3 was the sow's notch. She was a prophet daughter. And I was showing her, she was in the dirt lot there east of the boar sheds. And I ran her out of the shed and Tim saw her and he goes, do you have a video camera? And her length of hip and her angle into her hawk, all that was so much different than what, what I'd been able to been making before Prophet came here. And Tim goes, you got a video camera? I said, yeah. He goes, go get it. I said, why? He said, we're going to video this gill. He said, when we get them messed up, we're going to go back and look at it because he said, this one's made right. <laughs> Use there and as that, a reference. And, that, and, and what's crazy is that one boar, I think, but you know what? And this, I guess I'll have to confess. I, I don't even know. I was doing a lot of business with SGI. I might've given $500 for him. I can't remember, but I, I had a sense of just, you know, that I owed George. I mean, I, I just, I knew that that thing was so different. And so he, he was paramount and being able to make the sows actually became the signature type 4k sows. And it, anyway, it's, then I bought a boar from him at the fall classic. He wasn't down there. The boar is a fifth place boar. And this was an awesome story. I looked at the pedigree and he was out of Grizz and Grizz was a, spud beefcake and george had taken bred him right back to a one of his best beefcake daughters and the sire of spud and the sire of beefcake was the same kodiak symposium boar that george had raised and symposium was out of the 53 one sow cobs which absolutely was one of the best yorkshire females anywhere i mean i bet if you talk to steve he'd tell you that 53 one was a was a benchmark type female so anyway, that was stacked in there really, really tight when he made, when he made Grizz. Well, to make Old Goat, the boy that was down there at the Fall Classic, he took and bred Grizz right back to another one of his best beefcake sows. 
Well, this boar comes in places fifth in class. George isn't down there to show him. And uh, anyway, I had, I'd actually, this is crazy. It's going to sound flaky to some people, but Cade Hummel had been a fieldman and Cade had seen pigs here and there. And he called me sometimes one be, but twice a year, but he'd call and tell me about some pig. And a lot of times, you know, it was something that he called and told me about big shot. I had a chance to buy big shot from John Lane off the farm for 2,500 and Tommy Hilton said, get in your truck and go look. And I was a tight wad and I didn't, it was 2008. Anyways, I tried to buy him the morning of the show there at Indiana. It's a crossbred classic. I ran him out now. I said, John, will you take 2,500 for me? He goes, nope, not here. But anyway, <laughs> Kate, had, Kate had left the swine registry and I had felt a loss. I just, I don't get out on the road as much as I should. And it kind of been on my mind. Fall classic was coming up and I had a dream. And in this dream, Cade was in it. And as I woke up, there was Ralph Doak. And the words that were in my mind, I didn't hear anything Ralph said, but the words that were in my mind is listen to what Ralph has to say. And it was just like it was on a marker board. It was so clear. It was just... So anyway, I get down the fall classic. I think this is in 2012, maybe. And we'd raised, we had Hillbilly, the pig, the, some of the sons and stuff were working out of him pretty good. And I'm standing behind the pen, and Ralph comes across the ring and smiles when he sees me, and he reaches over the pen there and shakes my hand, and he says, he goes, you're doing a good job up there, young, or I hear you're doing a good job up there, young man. He said, keep, keep the hammer down. Well, I had a pair of boards bred the same, Litter, litter, they're, well, they're out of Littermate Sisters and Hillbilly. One of them we called Letter E, and the other one I called Hammer Down. And I was thinking about selling one of them, and it was funny, or I was going to keep Letter E, but I was thinking about selling Hammer Down. And he said, keep the Hammer Down. And so I kept that more. I never priced it. But wow. Then, he, he, and well, it was interesting, and this I've got to confess some of my dreaminess. There are three hamsters out there in the ring, and one of them's a Cedar Ridge gilt. The other one is a, I think it's a Peter's gilt, frozen semen gilt. And then I can't remember, there was a third ham gilt in the ring. And I don't know if I was gravitating to that thought on those two boars or what it was, but Ralph said something to me. He said, you got to love that female out there, don't you? And what was crazy is I didn't know which one he was talking about. And the reserve guilt was the one I kind of liked. It was the Peters, the Peters guilt. And I think she was out of Frozen in Time, which was bred quite a bit like our old knockout boar, which there's a pretty good story with knockout. If you want to get into that, remind me. But anyway, I didn't hear I had this dream. I'm supposed to listen to what he said. And I don't even know which guilt he's talking about, you know. Later, I asked him and he told me it was the Peters guilt. But as, as we get into the auction, I'm, I'm excited about this York Moore of George's. He's got great big high-heeled feet. And then 1984, Russ Snyder called me and he said, are you going to be up around Ames? And I said, yeah, I can come up. What do you got? And he said, I got something I want to show you. I, and he said it in a sense like this was important. So I got up there before too long. And he bought, they had a, it went back to the German blood. The war they had there called Max II. 
And anyway, he had bought a son of him that came from advanced genetics. He called NC Max. And he said, I want to show you this board. He runs him in the, they have him run in the isolation room there. And I'm looking at this board. He said, what's different on this board? I said, Russ, I've never seen feet like that. I said, those are the highest healed, best constitution feet, even as the toes. I said, I've never seen feet like that on a pig. He said, you know what his feet look like? And I said, no. He said, if you want to make them tough, you want to make them so they can stand up on concrete and not get abrased and all that. He said, put a foot on a pig like a goat's got. He said, go to the goat barn sometime at State Fair and walk around and look at those things. He said, that's the way we need to put the feet on these pigs. He said, make them like a goat's foot. He said, this pig's got, he gave 4,000 for him. And then later they ended up exporting him to Japan. I only got like a couple collections on him. But wow. some of those sows were were good but anyway so this boar that that george has got down there's got these kind of feet and he's bred like that and i'm like wow i need to buy this boar and i'd asked russ snyder one time after he'd retired i said russ you always seem to have a way of buying those boars that were great female sires and i said you've taught me a lot about underlines looseness structure maturity skeleton and all that I said, is there some little hidden gem you've got that helps you figure out which of those boars are going to make good female sires? He looked at me, smiled, and he says, it's hormones, Kirk. He said, that male that comes in that ring that's robust, like he owns the darn place, he said, he'll be, he's in there chomping, acting like he's a boar, and he knows he's a boar and ready to take anything. He said, he'll make those mamas, they'll have pigs and lay down and milk them. It's hormones. So anyway, I'm sitting down in the front bleachers as the York sale comes up the next day. And Ralph and, and George are great friends. And I think George, you know, he had stuff going on. And Ralph, I think, talked him into sending this boar down because Ralph liked this boar that much. Well, the boar comes in the ring, and I mean, he picks his head up and he's chomping. And he's not just walking around that ring. He's owning it. And I thought, I'm going to buy this boar if I can afford him. So anyway, he he's a massive stout. And anyway, they start the boar $400, and they aren't getting a bit. And Ralph grabs the mic. He's there at the Fall Classic, and he goes, Do we not have a breeder left in this barn? Do they all got to have a cute face or some great big fanny for you to see him? He goes, I want a breeder to buy this boar. And he's going to buy him conditionally. He said, here's the condition. you got to take this boar home and you got to breed him to some of your better sows. And he said, I want to report back in 12 months. And all I want to know is if this boar was a good investment or not. And he said, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, I know the answer. And anyway, they start, the, it was a thousand dollar speech. <laughs> I bet it was a bid again, and I buy him for four hundred dollars. Bid one time, and Ralph looks down. I'm right there in the front row, right as they come in. I'm sitting right there, and he looks down. He's got this great big smile on his face, but he points his finger at me, and he goes, "That goes. That deal goes for you too, kid." And what was funny was 
we used him on some good salads. Mike McCoy came through then the following year on his way to the National Barrow Show, and I had a bunch of pigs out of him over at the other place in the modified open front. Mike wanted to see him. Mike was the one that found Beefcake's mom and found, well, he found, he'd seen Beefcake's mom, and he bought Beefcake when Beefcake wasn't probably that trendy or popular, and Beefcake was a good good addition to the Yorkshire breed. So Mike wanted to see these pigs out of old goat because he knew how limebred Beefcake and Spuddy was. We'd go over there, and we went through all those pigs, and he was excited. I got thinking as Mike left, I thought, I wonder if Ralph would be on his way to the Barrow Show. It was like a Saturday afternoon. I thought I had to call him. So I call him, and he says, what's up? And I said, well, I said, Ralph, we're good friends, but you may not know this, but I said, I procrastinate way more than most people would ever dream. I said, a lot of times on assignment, I might just barely beat the deadline. But I said, that that conditional deal on that boar selling down at Fall Classic? He said, yeah. I said, I'm not going to have to wait 12 months. I can tell you right now, he's a good investment. <laughs> so That's awesome. Got, and I, I named him Old Goat because he had a feet like a goat and rocked <laughs> like a goat when he was preaching. <laughs> but, That's awesome, but dude. Eddie, That's, those but stories are incredible. Of, you know, I, those two boards I got from George, we, we donated a couple sows to – Xander scholarship fund and the tragedy of Ralph losing ear, or pardon me, George losing Eric. But you know, I that first it was interesting. That first one, she was fifty-one-eight. She's out of the best Doolittle raid sow I got to keep. There are two other Doolittle raid sows that are probably better. One of them went to Justin Harden. That's the mother of Mountain Man and Kissing Cousins. And then Tommy Hilton, my good friend in Texas, got one that. He ended up breeding the big bucks, and then it, Kevin Thomas, their family, showed it, and then Kurt Morgan ended up with it, and that's they bred it to nine to five, and then that's the mother of of wedding night and turned me loose and two and all. But but it, so I had the the best dude little sow I had was fourteen five, and she was fourteen. She was 14.5. Her, she was doing a little raid on the 84.1 sound system directly back on the old 35.1 size Supreme Justice. And that sow was the grandmother of Big Motor and Honky Tonk and probably in more females than any, any one sow in our place. We've line bred back to that sow family more than any. And, uh, but it, anyway, it was interesting when Jesse came in the fall of 14 and we were going to have this bred sow sale. We had a daughter of 14.5, an old goat there, 51.8 was her ear notch. And she was in the west pin of the finishing building. And we we went out there and, and we were loading them up to take them out in the yard and take pictures. And he said, let's load this 51.8 up. And I said, Jesse, I said, she's not leaving here. I said, her, her depth of heart and her spring of rib, her body and her bone, I said, she's, I said, she's not leaving here. He said, Kirk, we need to picture her. He said, she's a model of what you've tried to do, you know. And he said, we need to picture her. And I said, all right, we can picture her. But I said, I, I don't want to get rid of her. So we put it, we took a picture of her. And she took a decent picture. But, man, she was, I remember the footnotes. I, uh, my comments on the footnotes on it was that uh, if she was a mayor, you'd have to go to the tax store and get a 36-inch cinch before you could saddle her. Because <laughs> She was huge. What, but, yeah. But anyway, that was the year that George had lost Eric. 
and about three day, three or five days before the sale, I woke up much like the same way, exactly the same way as when I'd seen that vision of Ralph. And this was an old goat daughter. And I woke up and I, I thought about Prophet, I thought about old goat, I thought about George, I thought about my brother Kyle. And I knew, I knew right then that we were gonna sell that guilt and we were gonna give the proceeds to his grandson. And I, you know my respect for Jesse, we've talked about that and I guess I, I'll say this, you know, my mom, I don't know that she ever said anything bad about a, a person. And probably the best child lesson I ever gave my little daughter was um, Don Draper told me a story about, about they had challenged these rats they, in a test. They'd made them think and figure out how they were going to eat and get through this maze. And then they had some that were unchallenged. And at the end of it, they they realized the ones that were challenged, the cortex of their brain was much bigger. So I, I was talking to Heather, she was four, and I said, Heather, I said, I said, have you noticed one thing about the difference in Grandma Bev and Grandma Marilyn? And she said, what's that? I said, Grandma Bev, have you ever heard her say anything that would hurt anybody's feelings? And she said, no. I said, and I don't mean to belittle Jared's mom, but it just she just said what she felt. and. And there was a big difference. And anyway, I said, what about grandma? Shouldn't vote? That, she does, that's just grandma. That's the way she is. And Heather understood that. But I said, how, how does grandma Bev do that? And she said, I, I don't know. And I said, you know that deal on those? I told her about the test on the rats and thinking and all that. And I said, you know, Heather, you're four years old and you seem to be a really special little girl. But I said, do you realize I really think the way grandma does that is she thinks about everything she says before she says it if it's going to affect the way somebody feels and if it's going to bother them she just doesn't say it and she got a great big smile on her face and she said I'll bet you're right I'll bet you're right dad that's how she does it and I said Heather you're four years old I said think how much wiser and how much bigger your brain would be if you start doing that today when you get to be 20. And that's, that's the best lesson that I've ever given any child, anybody, at least I feel. So anyway, the reason I bring that up is as I called Jesse Hyman and I tell him, I said, Jesse, because I would pretty much told him this guilt wasn't going to sell. And I told him, I said, I mean, in my mind, if she didn't bring 10,000, she didn't need to go anywhere. But I wasn't going to, I didn't really want to even sell it. But I, I told Jesse when I called him about 7 in the morning, I said, Jesse, that 518 old goat daughter, she's going to sell. And I said, we're going to donate the money to Xander's scholarship fund. And he started to say, but Kirk, and I, got, I think I know what he was going to say, but he realized that if he said that, it probably, I already knew that. I already know that she could bring a lot of money. And then Jesse's mind worked so fast, he just put it in reverse and he changed. He got quiet for five seconds and he goes, friendship and conviction are two of the most powerful things in the world. Friendship and conviction are two very powerful things and there's not enough of either one in the world today. And I, so he turned what could have been, you know, 
a minor insult into one of the greatest compliments that I probably could have gotten, you know. But anyway, it was just neat. So we, but I, when George found out that that guild had been donated, he called me, and he he couldn't hardly even talk. And I told him, I said, George, I said, I don't, you don't owe me anything. I'm indebted to you for those two boards. I should have had another zero or two behind them for what they did for me. But that, uh, that, that created such a friendship. And that's the thing that's so neat in this industry, you know, is there's times that are really, really good where friendships get bound. And then, you know, it's crazy that wind went through Iowa here a while back. We we're 60 miles south of it. It's crazy how many hog friends I had call wondering how if we were, if we if it hit us, you know, and so I think that's that's the wage, you know. When I started this whole thing, I dreamed of having a ski lake. I dreamed of having this and that, and and most of those things probably I've been blessed with a lot of good animals, but and the bigger part of that's the friends. I I well just like you. I, when you said that you've been here, you know, I have a warmness come through my heart when somebody's been on the judging team and they come through. I, it's a wage. It's one of the best wages I get, you know, so yeah. that's kind of fun. Okay. Uh, well, we're way past the, well past the two hour mark in this interview. Might be my longest interview yet and I'm excited about it. I wanted to, before I let you go here, and I don't know how much time you have left, let I'm me know. Sorry. Let me know if you want to cut it off. You still there? We're fine. Whatever. Yeah, I'm here. Yep. All right. I, I if I ended it right here and didn't ask about hillbilly bone, I'd kick myself after. So, I mean, just for me growing up, here's, that here's that was the, the bore. Well, he hillbilly wasn't perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's just like Jesse said about Swiger. I mean, Jess, Jess, Max might have said it best. There's a little plaque that Jesse's got on the sculpture. And those Jared Sliff sculptures are awesome. If you want to give somebody a keepsake type of guilt, gift that means something, they're as good as it gets because you glance up there and it's a memory every time you look. So, Yeah, shout out, shout out uh, Jared Sliff really quick because yeah, those, those exactly. are incredible. Those are awesome. You don't know about him, check them out because they are they are something incredible. And the one he did on Hillbilly is just – Hillbilly had a soft texture to scrotum, and I believe that that's important for underlying quality. And it, you could reach and feel it and it feel about like a baby's butt. Well, in this in the sculpture, he, he captures that. As you look at it, you're like, that. that's soft. Wow. It's just awesome. It's awesome. But in that deal, Jesse made a comment. I think you asked him and he did a great job of, you know, talks about the conviction and staying with it and believing in it, how important that is as a breeder. And that's absolutely the truth. And I'm up there in the guest house and looking at Swigers. This is a little while after he'd passed. And Max, it's the first I'd really got to talk to Max since he'd passed. And Max reads that thing. I said, that is, those words are just awesome. That's absolutely the truth. And here he is, I don't know, his age, young. He's well beyond his years when it comes to mentality. But anyway, he looks at me and he goes, Kirk, he said, I just think it is so awesome that God put Hillbilly and Swagger on the earth at the same time and they complimented each other. And that was just, 
That was awesome. That was a good closing to those two boars. But I guess, you know, we probably, it's it's late, we're, we're over. But I can honestly tell you that I truly believe the reason Hibley came to 4K Farms was out of a compassionate promise I made to Tommy Hilton. When he lost his grandson, I, I promised him that I would work as hard as I could to put a smile on that little girl's face. Well, that little girl was Hannah, his granddaughter, that was about three and a half years older than Luke Sean. And it's interesting, the way I got to know Tommy, Bob, Bob Brown called, and Bob is a good friend, and he was part of our whole development of that 80s and 90s success and anyway he called and told me he said I got a gentleman in my driveway if you got a good barrow he's looking for something to show in January and I I said there is one good barrow out there that I think might work and he said well he said if you got one tell me if you don't he said just say so he said this guy if you're just honest with him he'll either be if if you're honest with him he'll be one of the best customers you've ever had well What's interesting was that um, he not only was one of the best customers we ever had, he was one of the best friends I could ever have. He was one of the neatest people that I could ever have asked to bolt bolt my life, and he did. But that one morning when I, when this had called, it was a tragic time, and I I thought about the pain and the grief of my brother who was was in that accident and tragically killed and I just I thought about that little girl I thought she'll never hold her little brother on this earth again and I I told Tommy I said I say I I hope I never feel the pain you're going through right now but I said when that little girl gets ready to show we're gonna put a smile on her face I'm gonna work as hard as I can to put a smile on her face and you know he told Tommy told me to go. Tom, Tommy told me to go look at do or hit a big shot. He said go go look at that boy. Go get in your truck, drive out there and look, and then you'll know. And they were wanting twenty five thousand for him. And I probably I just couldn't feel the courage to go pay that. And then when I saw the board of Indiana, I, I thought well Tommy probably helped me out on this board some. I shouldn't try to buy him while I. John said no, and eight hours later he brings seventy thousand. And so the next year I went out there and I was focused and I, we bought, I shouldn't have got him bought. I mean, he, he was a Ben Nobles <laughs> boy and he was really thick made. He was heavy boned. He probably was a little straight in his shoulder. His knee came in up front, but he was absolutely a truck. And Jay and Will Winter were judging it and they had, they had a, a black, big shot son of Ottenwaters in the ring and then they had a belted pig of Grant Strom's and they had this mobile pig and they had him out there for quite a while and finally I think the story if it was said right I may not have it exactly perfect I probably shouldn't say but I think probably the comment was made about what, what to do and I think they probably decided if they didn't put the mobile bore third they might end up with a, a bore with a crooked front leg in the in the championship drive and might have to use him so anyway they put him third and when the bore was selling i'd asked rick whitman i said 
what's this boar an absolute steal on? And he said, well, he'd sold a boar for 87000 that June. He said, if you could get him for less than 10000 he'd be an absolute steal. Well, the black boar that beat him class about, I think, 130 And wow. we had bid on one of Jesse Heimer and, and uh, Mike Jackson had a boar which went on to be Heimlich. I'd ask Jesse, Jesse and I were friends, we weren't as close then as we are now, but I asked Jesse, I said, you know, would you be interested? He said, yeah, I'd keep a third on him. And Rick said, well, I'll put in, I'll put in 6,000. And so it's just easy math. I pushed him to 18,000, however, parish was auctioneer. And and they, I thought I'd go 6,000 and the other guys put in six, we'll go to 18,000. Well, we didn't get him bought at that. And High Point gets him for 18,500. So Howard's nobody's fool. I mean, he sold lots of pigs, and this boar comes in the ring, and and I I asked Rick. I said, "What do you think he's an absolute bargain at?" Hog market's forty-two bucks. He said, uh, "If you get him any under ten thousand, he's a, he's a steal." But he said, "I can't put any money on him." He said, "I bought Super Seven, and that's kind of what's in this boar." And he said, "They both kind of got a little bit of that tendency to be in at the knee a little bit." And he said, "I'd use it on a few sows, but he said I can't." I can't invest and use him enough, you know, use him enough to make it a, a worthy investment to pay for half of them or something. So anyway, I'm on my own. It starts in and the bidding plays out around, oh, around 8,000. So I bid 8,000. They go 8,500. They come to me to nine. I bid 9,000. They go 9,500. They, they come to me at 10. As they start, as the ringman looks at me at 10,000, I, I thought, Hogmart is 42 bucks. If I come home with a carbon on a $10,000 check, my brothers and my dad are going to kill me. <laughs> and anyway, I said, no, I, I could feel, I could feel a lump in my throat. I did, I just chickened out. It wasn't, I, and so I said, no. And anyway, Howard goes, I got two of my good friends stuck at 9,000. Who gives me 9,500? And I tell you what, when he said that, the, the pain in my throat even got worse. And I told the ringman, I said, let the other guy have him. And I wasn't trying to be a smart ass. I didn't know anything was going on. I was just chicken. That's all there was to it. And so anyway, the ringman, he steps up and he whispered to Howard. He said, let the other guy have him. Howard goes, Sends him down to me, and the ringman said, "Well, you give eighty five hundred for him." I said, "Yeah, I'll give eighty five hundred. I'd bid nine, but I bet there wasn't an eighty five hundred. So Howard, he said, Did you "Give eighty five hundred." And I nodded my head, and Howard drops the hammer, and boom, it's sold. Oh my! But you know, it was interesting. I went back and looked at Doolittle back in the pen when there was. I don't know if I was when they were picking champion guild or something. I went back there and there wasn't hardly anybody back, you know, in the barn. And Ben was back there feeding the pig or doing something. And I introduced myself and Ben said, well, I was at your place with Justin Harden when I was in 4-H. He said, I bought a barrel from you. We showed him and got along decent in the county and took him to state <laughs> fair and did okay. And it, when he said that, Cannon, I just had a sensation. I'm going to own this more. But yet when I was in there bidding on him, that whole feeling left. But when it was all said and done, we ended up with him. So, you know, I should have not owned that boar. And I had a number of people come up later. And, you know, I, I really, and I told a friend just the other day, they were talking about the interview I did with, with 
Taylor and stepping out and using fatal attraction and stuff. And I told the story when I ordered fatal attraction semen for that December farrowing, I talked to Brent and he told me I could get, if I want to get eight doses, he said, I'll let you have it 150 a dose. Fatal was at 250. So that Monday morning I called Diana and I said, you know, what fatal give this morning? And I thought about it before I called. I thought if he gave some extra, he'd take 75 a dose on the extra. I'd just buy the whole collection. I had four good sows I was going to breed. So anyway, I end up getting, she goes, well, he gave, he gave more than enough. We got your cover, but I'll go back and see what's left. And so she came back and she said, he actually gave 12. There's four extra. And Brent said, if you wanted those at 75 a dose, you can have them. I, and that's exactly what I was thinking. So I said, yeah, ship them all. So anyway, you're finding out my tightwad nature, but most of my friends know that already. So anyway, <laughs> I get that scene on Tuesday morning. I go to breed, and those four sows are all ready. They're hot, ready to breed. I put those four doses in there, and I pull around the east edge of the grower building. That lots of north of the boar shed. It's about 1030. There's two gilts stacked up out in the middle of the dirt. There's no boar around, no nothing. And I thought if that one is 106-3, that good blue gilt out altar back to 40-3, I'm gonna breed. I'm gonna breed that dose. Of, I'm gonna put that dose, extra dose of fatal, or one of those extra doses of fatal. I sure enough go out there, knock the top one off, and it's 106-3, the best gilt in the lot. And I grabbed the spirette, bred her without even a bore, bred her right out there in the middle of that lot, put that dose of fatal in there, and then doubled her, and that made Hillboy's mom. So, anyways, I can't claim to have had a lot. To do it's a little like jesse was talking about swagger you know you get a feeling you kind of got that there's something there but but i truly believe the neatest part of the to finish the story of that promise to tommy was that in 2013 he helped me judge the world pork expo and i called him in fort in 14, we'd planned on doing it again to do the crossbred boars and crossbred gilts. And he called me about 10 days before the show and said, I just don't feel comfortable coming. Well, two weeks after, they diagnosed a brain tumor. Andy also, his father, was a little bit ill. But that's when I asked Jesse to help me judge, and he did. And then that was when he bought Roxy. But the following year, They've got some pigs on feed, and Tommy's now, we've been fighting lymphoma for two years, and he's not in very good shape, and the kids go see him before they're going to go to the expo that week. And on Sunday, when Hannah came, that girl now is 15, she comes in there to his room, and he smiles, and he says, Hannah, you've got a pretty good guild out, cross guild out there at the farm. He goes, I want you to do me a big favor this week. And Tommy was a guy that, I mean, he had a, he had a steer, I think was a reserve champion at Fort Worth when he was like in junior high. He sold that steer and put a down payment on a farm. I mean, he was just one of those stoic guys. He'd make a move and it'd work. I never got one, one, and I asked him a lot of things and I never got poor counsel from him once. And we can go some other interview. You want to talk some Tommy Hilton stories. There's some awesome ones, but anyway, he, he looked at Hannah and he said, I got one thing to ask you. He said, I want you to go to Moines and bring it home for Papa. And they loaded those pigs up on Monday and headed to Des Moines and they get to Wichita Falls and they got a phone call from Ginger that Tommy passed. 
So anyway, I get to work and I head down Tuesday night and I get to Wichita Falls at midnight. Got a motel room. She Tindred told me his wife's a great lady. Reminds me of Barbara Stanwyck on the Big Valley, just a stoic ranch woman. She can do anything. Anyway, she told me the Kirk funeral was to be at ten o'clock. She said, "Come out early. Just come out to the farm and have breakfast with us." So I drove down there, and I got there about seven in the morning from Wichita Falls, and I, I think Gretchen and maybe her husband had gone to town to get coffee or something, but. It was just Ginger and I, and she said, she goes, Kirk, I want to tell you something. I said, what's that? And she said, that morning when Tommy passed, she said the kids came back. And I told them, I said, we're going to have a little family meeting. We're going to go in this bedroom over here. So they went in the bedroom, and she said, and that this is a part, she used to race barrel horses, and I think Ginger's one of those women that if, she needed to turn one, she could turn it. If she needed to stop one, she could stop one. But if she needed to make it run to the finish, she knew how to make it run to the finish. And she just told the kids, she said, we're pretty well prepared. We knew this was coming. She said, the funeral's visitation's going to be Tuesday night. The funeral will be 10 o'clock Wednesday. She said, Jeff, you got lots of friends. I want you to get one of those friends, whether they take your rig or take gas card whatever but you send one of those friends with those pigs and you had them to Des Moines and Wednesday afternoon I'm flying you all up there to the to the expo to show those pigs she said there's nothing that Tommy would have wanted more than you kids to go show those pigs I think there are 428 cross gilts they started showing pigs Friday morning at 7 30 I believe and at about midnight a little before midnight they named Hannah wins the class, and then she wins the heavy division. And I send a text to, to Ginger about what had happened. She said, I, I know, I'm watching it on the internet. I forgot all about the Walton cast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's watching she, now. She, yeah, it's great. I love them, man. And so anyway, it ends up, they come in for the grand champion drive, and she wins it. Hannah wins it with, and this guilt she's driving is a double bread hillbilly bow. And, uh, wow. What's crazy? Dave Geyer had a, Jesse, there was one guilt in the barn that might have beat her. It was a bone in hand guilt that Heimerd raised. And Geyer weighs it out by a pound. And Jesse and I'd been standing side by side watching those guilts show, and when that happened, I mean, Jesse's a competitor, the max. And, uh, he had to leave the ring. I would have too. You know, I mean, he just, yeah. he just was. But I think that was another part of that divine deal. You know, I don't know which guilt was best. We'll never know. But it was. But it was neat. Jesse came back and he apologized or made the comments. And I said, I wish I'd have been here. And it was just, I if I could ever levitated and gone up off the ground. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I felt a thing there for. A, when they named her grand champion, it was just, it was crazy, the feeling I had. Yeah. And I looked down at my phone, and Ginger had just sent me a text. And what was interesting, the first time I judged the expo in 2012, I hadn't judged a hog show since 2000. And Brian Arnold had called, and I told Brian I wanted to have 48 hours, and I'd call him back. And my one 
one question was going to be to Tommy Hilton. I was going to tell him, I'm judged. I, I don't know if I should do this deal. You know, in fairness to the sale order, the exhibitors, the value of the boards, the whole deal, I said, I, Tommy said, Kirk, you need to do it. And I prayed about it. If he said to do it, I was going to do it. And I looked at him and I said, Tommy, I'll do it in one condition. He said, what's that? And I fully knew he'd been diagnosed with lymphoma in June. This was November of 2011. I fully knew that he may not be there in June of 2013. When, or this, yeah, but it would have been June, June 2012 when... No, it would have been November 12. We judged it in 13 together, and Jesse and I did it in 14. But I fully realized that he may not be alive in June of 13. I mean, it was that. It was, but even when I told him, I said, I'll do it in one condition, Tommy. He goes, what's that? And I said, you got to be there. And he said, Kirk, no matter what happens, I'll be there with you. Phone when Ginger sent me that text when I felt like I was just floating and she said Tommy would be so, so, so happy if he was there. I just sent a text. He is. And it was just, I mean, I really believe that's the reason we got Emily Bone. It was nothing about my ability as a breeder. It was all for that one compassionate moment when I was told him I'd make that little girl feel better. So, I mean, that's... Some people maybe know that story, but not very many. But that's, well, and that's true. And I appreciate you telling. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that story, and I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. And it, it's cool that you can kind of look back on that and kind of extrapolate and, and figure out in your head why you got that boar, why he was so influential. And, and that's incredible that it had that meaning to you and, and to her. Wow. Yeah, and it, you know, there was another, even Jerry McLemore had a 119 litter boar they called White Lakes. And Tim Fort called and told me about that boar. And he said, he's great. He said, Kirk, it's nuts how good this boar is. You know, he told me how he's open up and designed and what he looked like. And he said, he's got white up to the hocks on both rear legs, you know. And so I pictured him in my mind. And it's, it's crazy to think this, but. Anyway, Dan Burslop, Bryce Connell, I went up to look at the guilt show up at Chickasha there during the fall classic. And we went out to look at the 119 litter boar. And Jerry said, yeah, go out there. He, he told me which, where he'd be. And so I went out there and we ran him out. And he was a good boar. I mean, he was a really good boar. But I guess that's probably one thing about me. I can be pretty dreamy, and I guess I dreamed probably a little bigger than life in that case, and that's what I thought. I said, he's a good boar. He's a really good boar, you know, but I'd pictured one a little bit heavier bone, a little bit more blown apart, a little bit more masculine, you know, and what's crazy is I raised this boar up, didn't we? Didn't ever, I don't think I ever priced him to anybody, but I was collecting him for my good friend Joe Stephens and I'm walking him up the sidewalk there east of where his pen was, and I look at him, and it was like one of those epiphany-type moments. I'm like, that's that boar I pictured in my mind when Tim was describing white lights. And I, so I guess the whole thing is just, there's, it, there's an air about it that's kind of unique. But I, I guess one of the things in life is it's fun when you have 
something like that that works out so well. It's actually it's a little bit like when Jesse talks about he's had so many accomplishments, you don't really have to expound on much of it. They're there, you know, and it's it's been fun to had Hillboy Bone in our life and all the people we got to see him and and he's still in a lot of pedigrees. I mean, the board's been we've got a little frozen semen at some point in town we'll, we'll break it out we've sold a little bit on some auctions you know so there there may be even some of them floating around out there right now but but he's he was special he was neat neat home yeah. jared could come down the sidewalk and say bone you ready for your gatorade and jump out up like a dog and look out that back window his personality was what was so neat you know <laughs> so well uh kirk we're gonna do. We're gonna have to do another one because I know you've got more stories to tell, and I've got more questions. But I think we need to cut it off at a two and yep. a half hours. <laughs> um, I I, I want to say I appreciate you taking your time. Um, is Jara still there? Yeah. Is she still yeah, sitting with here. you? Yep. Well, right I appreciate across the counter. I appreciate Jara letting you use her iPhone for this interview. And I, I can't yeah. believe she just had, what does she think? Just sitting there, uh, listen to you talk all the time. I bet she gets that she, often. She's probably heard most of the stories before, but I'm, she was over behind my back shoulder. I'm sure there are a few sideways head nods through the deal. Like don't go there. So, <laughs> anyway, she, Especially she when you were talking about her mother, right? Well, she knew that part. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. She knew, she, she knew that part. So well, anyway. no, Kirk. I, no, I, that's good, Ken, and I enjoyed it. So yeah, I appreciate you, you taking much. your time, and and I'm serious. We're gonna have to do another one, and I I want to come up to Red Oak, Iowa, and we can go on a boat sometime. We'll do that, and I guess the nice thing about you bringing Jared into the equation here at the end is she's the one that'll write the label to get get the label printed to get you some pork chops. So you probably smoothed her there enough to get that all taken care of. So oh, we'll get those. Bingo. I think if we do another, hit, you can eat those, and then we can talk later, and you can actually talk about it, see if I was. I've been known to sometimes stretch the truth a little bit, so you can let us know how we did on that. So. Definitely, I'm. I'm sure uh, I might need to have Jara on the podcast. I bet she's got some stories just on the outside looking in that that she's hiding. Well, one, she's been a great hostess. I mean, there's been a lot of we call it the 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 hillbilly Hilton down in the basement that we've re, hillbilly probably helped pay for the modeling remodeling of it. But when we have people come, a lot of people stay with us, and Jara's a great host and a great cook, and so. Nice. That makes it fun. So. All right. Well, I'll I'll talk to you guys later. And um, okay. Sounds good. And and I'm gonna let you know about those pork chops soon too. And when, when I get those in, I'm gonna cook we'll them the first them. night. We'll send you a text when we send them first part of the week. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Thank I you. I appreciate you guys, and I'll talk to you later. Yep. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye. Time's limited, so you must listen carefully. So obviously, that won't be the last time I'm going to have Mr. Swanson on the podcast. I mean, we probably could have talked for two more hours. And I'm being legitimate about that. And I hope you guys got that from like our tone. I mean, we pro I had to cut it off because, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I had told my girlfriend that we were going to go get Buffalo Wild Wings at a certain time. Okay, and then 
Mr. Swanson, Kirk, he said, let's, I'm like, let's do the interview. So I was like, all right, we're going to knock it out in an hour and a half. Then we're going to go get Buffalo Wild Wings. And then <laughs> me and Kirk just started talking for like two hours and 40 minutes. And I knew coming out of that interview that my girlfriend was going to be very hangry. Okay. And all the guys that are listening, uh, me and my girlfriend have been dating like a year and a half now, something like that. We're still, we're, we're young. Okay. But I know her hangry, and I know all the guys listening know hangry. It's terrifying. And it, it, she was just sitting in the room an hour and a half hangry, and it was building up. I'm surprised she didn't leave, to be honest with you. But I finally had to be like, okay, Kirk, we got to talk about Billy Bone, because if I don't get out of this house... It's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. I'm talking like she's a monster. Faith, if you're listening, you're a sweetheart. You're the best. She just needs her wings sometimes. <laughs> she needs her wings. Okay? Don't judge her. Everybody does. I was hangry too, to be honest with you. Coming out of it, I mean, I felt good. I didn't talk too much. I was just astounded mostly by Kirk's sayings and lessons. So... Yeah, I just, I had to fuck, <laughs> well, there we go. I had to cut him off. That was almost the first time I said the F word in the podcast. <laughs> wow, if you guys stayed on for this long, you got a treat. All right. I'm, I, like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to, I know I've been doing bi-weekly, but I'm going to try to be more consistent and, and go back to the weekly schedule. I'm sorry, guys. I, I apologize. I do. I just got back into school. Okay, I, I'm almost done with school, so it's a hot, it's a big priority for me. Um, I really want to finish uh, and get my get my GPA pretty high because there might be something some things that I want to apply for in the future. Um, so yeah, give me a break. Okay, I'm gonna try to do it, but. I'm also trying to put out three other podcasts. So if you're staying on for this long, these are my loyal listeners. So this is who I'm talking. I'm talking to my loyal listeners here. Like I picture you guys in my head right now. You guys are the guys and the gals. When I say guys, I mean guys and gals. Okay. I love you guys truly. And I will be more consistent with this podcast, honestly. You guys are incredible. I love the audience. I'm about to tear up. The audience is so incredible. The The community that we're building is second to none. I truly believe it. I'm, I'm getting emotional, guys. And I'm being honest with you. I really believe that the community that we're building with this podcast network and just the whole media sector in general coming into our industry is so so cool we're going to be able to see so many things that we haven't seen before and i'm just happy to have uh have the team that i have on board the three other podcasts are just incredible and you guys are absolutely fantastic share our stuff on social media support us we might have some ads soon, so give us a break if you hear some ads. But you know how it goes. I'll see you next week. I love you guys. Bye.